Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Nick. I am joined, of course, by Dylan. Hello, Dylan. Hello, Nick. And today we are here to talk about the season finale, nay, the series finale as of right now of Twin Peaks mm-hmm. Part 18. What is your name? Dylan, we did it. We made it. Say it ain't so, man. Uh, I, I loved doing this. I'm sad that it's coming to uh, an end. At least the show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel exactly the same way. Very bittersweet. Um, very happy that we managed to make it all the way to the end. Um, but at the same time, there's no more Twin Peaks to talk about. And that that is very sad. Um, it is. And I, I've been like every, after every episode that we recorded, I've been like, Oh damn, I want to record another one because I have all these new thoughts. And it's the, the weird, like Mobius strip that is this season of television. (laughs) It's like, as soon as it ends, you're like, wait, hold on a second. There's some stuff from like part two and three that I really want to go try to get a grasp on. And it's like, I'm, I'm really of the mind of like, I just want to watch this whole season over again. (laughs) And, um, if I can handle it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine how many more times I'll end up watching this show in its entirety. I imagine it's probably quite a few in my lifetime, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you and I, I have, done. you and I have joked before, like we could very easily just run this whole thing back from the beginning and just start doing all new episodes <laughs> about these, yeah. about the show <laughs> and still find tons of stuff to talk about that we haven't on the yeah, I mean, 30 like, plus hours that we've been doing this podcast. On our last episode, we talked for uh, unedited over four hours <laughs> about 57 minutes of TV and, and still didn't even get to everything. Like there was some stuff that I think we all left out for the sake of uh, I won't even call it brevity, but for the sake of getting out of there with our uh, like in t- like our senses intact, it's just one of those shows, man. You can just continue to talk and think about it, and uh, it just keeps unraveling the more you look at it. Yeah, yeah. What people don't know is that we actually talked to uh, Gisela Fletcher last week, our amazing guest, for well over four hours, and um, the version that was that was released was. A pretty heavily edited version. I think we got it down to like three hours and 12 minutes or something like that. But I mean, you know, the conversation just took us to all kinds of places. But we figured for for the sanity of our listeners, we would <laughs> pare it down to merely three hours. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, as people can probably tell by now, uh, it's just me and Dylan this time. Taking it back. Um we're ending our pretty amazing string of guests that we had for the back third of the show. Um, we really do want to thank everybody who was gracious enough to come on and 
uh, spend time with us here on this show. Um, every single person that we had on was, was absolutely awesome. I mean, uh, Sean and Josh, our friends way back in part eight, mm-hmm. John Bernardi, Andrew Grievous, Lindsay and Aiden from Big Green Peaks and Kisla last week. Everybody was just absolutely fantastic. And, uh, we are eternally grateful to those people. So. Uh, and for yeah. you, the listener. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And thanks <laughs> everybody for listening to this show. Um, it's been really, really cool to see people discover the show and we've gotten a very kind reception from the community and we are very thankful for that. It's been really nice. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's just you and me today, man. We're just, just two guys just in a car heading down a dark and lonely road towards the inevitable and potentially horrifying conclusion that is how we're gonna end i think we've got this i think we got it in the bag we're gonna solve it it's gonna be clean uh it's gonna Mm -hmm. make sense and everyone's gonna walk away from this knowing how twin peaks season Mm -hmm. three ends yeah folks after you listen to this podcast you're never you're you're never gonna want to listen to any other podcast again because we're just gonna we're going to lay it out so clearly and concisely that you're just going to be left with no questions whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry you had to wait this long uh, for a podcast to come along and do that for you. But um, I just want to say uh, preemptively, you're welcome. Yeah. NP. We yeah. got this. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah. no, seriously, I mean, the, the thing about this episode this finale is that you know as we talked about quite a lot on the last episode you know there's this whole shadow narrative sub narrative whatever you want to call it about judy and cooper and laura and you know perhaps trying to find judy and eradicate judy and all this all this weird mythos that's happening just beneath the surface of this show but you know, to be perfectly honest, when I watch this episode, part 18, I'm not really thinking too much about that. Like, what I'm really left with at the end of the day with this episode is just the way that it makes me feel. And just the incredibly disquieting feeling that it leaves me with. Which I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything that makes me feel quite the same way that this does like it is just a very very chilly very haunting experience for me personally me too and it it you know obviously we have cooper waking up in part 16 and we talked about the feel good vibes about that and then even if part 17 has its oddities it still revels in twin peaksness very much um in almost like a too um like a, like too clean of a way like we've talked about like all those people in the sheriff station and all of the big reveals and you know Diane is Nido and all these things that feed uh from the previous 16 episodes that you've watched whereas um this part 18 very much it's a it's such a deliberate change in tone 
and um also it's just it it not only does it feel different but it looks different which i think contributes to that and it's acted different um i i it it is an episode that i watched for this for this episode uh for this recording twice and the first time i watched it it was my first time seeing it since it aired and um i was you know st- uh, kind of on rails while watching it this time again because i you know i had kind of forgot i knew what happened but i had forgotten the sequence and the order that it happens in and um the second time around i i which was last night i you know i had to like pep myself up to watch it again because it's so uh it's a drain and watching it a second time you know watching other episodes of the return multiple times i felt like i was kind of catching some stuff plot wise the second time around some subtle things that um i didn't catch the first time around and uh this time though i actually found that i wasn't i wasn't finding anything new i was actually just it was completely an emotional experience it was only a i was only left with what this episode made me feel like and it's it's certainly uncomfortable it it really does take you way out of that the the vibes of the previous two episodes and put you into this very cold um almost like sterile feeling like it almost felt mm-hmm. like it had no had no heart it had no um and I don't mean that in terms of like the filmmaking, but just the the world that we experienced in part yeah. eighteen. It feels like you know a um, it feels like technically a reality. In that uncanny valley, uh, it, it just kind of it shook me a lot, and also the you know just seeing um, Cheryl Lee and Kyle MacLachlan's facial expressions. Just the the I think it can be understated how well acted this episode is um it's like well they just sat in a car and didn't say anything it's like but that speaks volumes like that facial expression the emotional response you get to seeing um you know from what you get from diane and then what you get from carrie page and then what you finally get in the final scene it just really um so there's so much masterful acting happening and um i just wanted to point that out real quick because we're gonna obviously talk a lot and a lot about all the content and things that happen but i think it's just a really amazing feat what um primarily like cheryl lee and kyle mclaughlin pulled off in the final act of this of this whole um series with without speaking very many words it was just a really um creepy terrifying but spellbinding performance um and it deserves its spot in the uh or its time in the spotlight i think Mm -hmm. yeah i'm glad you brought that up because i i think this is actually kyle mclaughlin's finest moment ever like i think he is absolutely incredible in this episode the way that he is able to ride this line between that essential cooperness and um, this other more ambivalent force that he's become is just really, really masterful. Like, he, at various points throughout this episode, 
hints at the character that we know and love in in Special Agent Dale Cooper while also making it very clear that it's not the same guy. He has been forever altered, you know, this 25 years that he has spent, you know, out of existence, essentially, has had a really deep and inexorable impact on him, as it should. You know, there's no way that Cooper could be the same guy that he was before he went to the Lodge, and I think that that's that's a big theme of this episode, and really the show in general. Like, that's one of the big topics that is explored very explicitly, in my opinion, throughout the entire show, and, um, you know, we're going to talk about it, but there are just moments where I think Kyle um, is just, he just plays it pitch perfectly, like this middle ground between Cooper and Mr. C. And you're right, um, Cheryl Lee, too. You know, just the way that she's able to convey the I don't know just the lostness of this character yeah of this girl who or this woman rather who clearly has had a has had a dysfunctional life to a certain extent like like it's obvious that whatever has happened to her you know in being separated or dissociated somehow from her, her life as Laura Palmer hasn't really done her any favors. You know, she's still, Mm -hmm. she's still got a dead guy in her house, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, um, exactly. And I mean, I mean, what what more can you say about Cheryl Lee? I mean, every, every, we've all seen firewalk with me. Like we know how great she is when she's working with Lynch. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's this episode is odd in that it's it's feels simultaneously the most grounded of all the episodes to me and yet and yet somehow the most nightmarish i don't know i don't know how to explain that because pretty much nothing overtly supernatural really happens after you know cooper steps out of the lodge into glastonbury grove and yet everything still has this profound feeling of of unreality to it, be it that long night drive or this disturbing sex scene between Cooper and Diane. It's just um, like everything that happens just has this feeling of vague wrongness. I think that's probably the prevailing adjective for me when thinking about this episode is like, everything feels deeply profoundly wrong and the way that lynch is able to convey that sense of wrongness i think is um pretty incredible and yeah i think that this episode is really really amazing like i know that even people who like the show sometimes have mixed feelings about this episode but i think it's definitely one of the best finales i've seen and it's pro i mean honestly apart from part eight it's maybe my favorite episode of this season i just i love what it does it it is so totally unique so bold and yeah i, I think it's incredible so yeah we should probably go ahead and <laughs> uh just dive into it and talk about what happens in this episode part 18 what is your name? 
Yes. FBI. I'm Special Agent Dale Cooper. Is Sarah Palmer here? Who? Sarah Palmer. No, there's no one here by that name. Do you know Sarah Palmer? No. Is this your house? Do you own this house or do you rent this house? Yes, we own this house. Who did you buy it from? Honey, what was the name of the woman who sold us the house? Chalfont, and Mrs. Chalfont. So <laughs> we get a great opening shot here, which is Mr. C's body burning in a chair in the red room. Fantastic. Beautiful. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Stone faced on fire. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really care. <laughs> I love it. He doesn't seem too bothered by the whole experience, I gotta say. And isn't he yeah. uh, doesn't he have the blue eyes this time? Yep. Yeah, he has the like you see in uh I guess the finale of season two. Yeah. Uh the very the the, the doppelganger eyes that, that Lara's doppelganger seems to have also. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He doesn't have the yeah. full black. Compared anymore. to cause yeah, because he doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't look, not like he has a natural eye color. It's a. It's just a fully blacked out. Uh, he's like all pupil all day. But yeah, interesting yeah. little little thing there. But um, yeah, I I loved this opening shot, um, especially since these episode this in part seventeen aired back to back. You see uh, Cooper walk into the boiler room using his 315 key you get julie cruz and you get some credits and then all of a sudden it's just like oh yeah that's right they sent <laughs> they sent mr <laughs> c back to the red room right and him. he is scorching so, yeah but yeah yeah, great opening shot. Mm-hmm. yeah one thing so this is the first time that i had watched this episode without having immediately watched the previous episode and i gotta say it, yeah. it, it's become more clear to me now that these two episodes really work in tandem. Like they're meant to be watched sort of as one big block. Um, just like the first two episodes of the season really are to me. I don't know. I just, I, I felt I should throw that in there. No, they definitely do. They, there's a clear, um, it's like its own almost like encapsulated story that I, I wonder just as a thought experiment, if you watched that first, you know, if you watched part 17 and 18 and then go back and watched parts 1 through 16, if it might even make the earlier parts of the season make more sense. Like, um, I wouldn't recommend doing that your first time around, but who knows? Maybe that's how I'll do it on my uh, my 10th rewatch when we do uh, 119 season 10, mm-hmm. <laughs> part 18, part <laughs> 10. <laughs> yeah, I really wish that I could just like eternal sunshine myself out of like ever having seen this season and just run all sorts of experiments and just like like watch part eight first 
watch part 17 first <laughs> like just do all sorts of crazy mind exper- experiments on myself i, I would really enjoy that uh, I guess that awesome. would require me to to uh, be directing myself from the past, uh, leave myself all sorts of uh, memento style notes, but I'm fine with that. I can work it. Hey, in man, the past scenario. dictates the future. Yeah, true, <laughs> true, true. So too true. Yeah. So Mike uses uh, the strand of Cooper's hair that we saw in part sixteen. In conjunction with a tulpa seed to create another Dougie, I guess you could say. He is a uh, a tulpa of Cooper. And this tulpa definitely seems a little bit more, uh, I don't know, a little bit more Cooper-ish than the Dougie Jones that we saw briefly in part three. That Dougie Jones seemed more akin to Mr. C in that he seemed like a little bit of a nefarious scumbag, but... Uh, this Tulpa is just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and excited to go back home to Lancelot Court. He says something without being prompted, which is a good (laughs) sign. He just says, home, uh, which is Mm -hmm. positive. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm really glad that they threw this ending in here for the the Jones family story. I love it. Yeah, I am too. And I think it's... um, yeah, I think it it was probably an intentional choice to front load this episode with a couple feel good moments. Like you get to see the bad guy burning, and then you get to see Sonny Jim and Janie E have their uh, their dad and husband to come home. Um, we get like a good a good three minutes mm-hmm. of good feelings. Like yeah, and then literally nothing seconds. else after that makes you feel good. So <laughs> no, you forget. I actually like. I forgot, like, on my second time watching this, like, last night, I totally forgot that it starts with... I thought forgot that anything good happens <laughs> or or actually, you know, good in quotation marks. Anything yeah. reasonably nice feeling happens. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Duh. Okay. And we're back in the woods. Got it. Yeah, because by the end of the episode, all of this is just pushed so far from your mind. You know? Like, you're just focused yeah. on the moment-to-moment strangeness of what's happening. Um, but yeah, so yeah, so the Tulpa he shows up at Lancelot Court, and that's it for the Jones family household. Presumably, they live happily ever after. Uh, at least I hope so. Uh, so we can do. Yeah, so what we get next, sticking around in the red room, is sort of a replay of the red room sequence that we saw in part two of this season, but it's. Uh, it's a little bit different in in a few ways. So we get this line again from Mike. Is it future or is it past? He and Cooper, they're sitting next to each other in the red room. This is the third time that we've seen this, this line from Mike. Is it future or is it past? We saw it twice in part two. And... Uh, the first time we see it, he utters this line, and then he says, someone is here, at which point his chair goes empty, and Laura appears. And that's when she, you know, kisses Cooper and whispers in his ear, and then flies up into the nether space uh, while screaming. Uh, and immediately after that, we get a replay again in part two of this line. Again, is it future or is it past? 
Um, at which point Mike leads Cooper to the doppelganger or the, uh, I'm sorry, not the doppelganger, the uh, evolution of the arm. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that second sequence of events is basically what happens here. Except Cooper's encounter with the evolution of the arm goes a little bit differently. In part two, the evolution says, do you remember your doppelganger? And that's where we get the whole flashback from the season two finale where Cooper is being chased by his doppelganger all over the Red Room. And this time, we get Audrey's line from, I think, what, part 13 or something? Part 13 or 14? Where she says, "Yeah, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Which was not something I at all expected to happen in this moment right, right here. It was pretty pretty shocking to hear that that line because it just seemed like such a throwaway from Audrey, you know. Um, but... Yeah, it has a um, it has a weird quality to it where I didn't remember exactly where I heard it the first time. Like I like the first time watching like this when it aired, I thought that it was a. <laughs> repeat of what the evolution of the arm says the first time and then afterwards i was like no that's that's what audrey says and i think i mean we can talk about it more but it's maybe kind of a um i don't know we said in i think part 16 or 15 or whichever one it was um where you where you know the finale of audrey's storyline happens but in a lot of ways i think that this actually this has to this is actually the last word on audrey horn whether it says anything or not um but i don't know i i i was really really stuck on this for a while like what Mm -hmm. is the inclusion of this line and i think it i think it might have something i mean i think it must obviously has something to do with audrey but i'm wondering if what happened at the end of um uh, like in the roadhouse when everything kind of she says get me out of here and she gets zapped into whatever white room she's in with the mirror um Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if that was her being affected by um cooper's intervention with laura because presumably Mm -hmm. if the laura palmer storyline of twin peaks season one and two didn't happen that way then audrey perhaps never ended up in the bank vault and never ended up in a coma and therefore was never uh raped by mr c and therefore never had richard so perhaps there's something at play there where maybe in that moment was where um her timeline was affected by cooper's actions I don't know, and that maybe that mm-hmm. this is just being reflected by we see things echoed in the red room that happen on the show all the time, and this could just simply be um, like a recapitulation of that line to indicate that um, the effects of Coop- Cooper Cooper's like uh, escapades have affected Audrey um, in a way that is maybe not clear to us, but. Um, is def it's it, it can't be a hundred percent unrelated unless David Lynch is just copy and pasting parts of the script <laughs> randomly around, which I mean maybe. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean it's totally reasonable to assume that all of this red we- red room weirdness is taking place across multiple timelines. Um, 
you know, obviously we see Cooper emerge from the Red Room in this episode, which is still extremely weird to me because, like, in what universe would he head back there after the events, you know, of Part 17? You know what I mean? Like, he was trapped there for so long that it just seems like it has to be a totally different reality than what we saw in Part 17, right? Like, just doesn't make sense to me that he would re-enter the red room from there. I think it's, um, I think this is the loop resetting. Yeah. Like if so, if, but I think that he was not like he was knowing that that was going to happen. He he was complicit in it. Um, because he says to Diane, I'll see you at the curtain call. So yeah, like, Mm -hmm. uh, just like upfront, I think, I'm of the belief that everything that we see in this episode, like I believe that this was the fireman's plan, like everything up in up to and including Lara being taken. Um, and like every, everything that we see here, I think has a reference point to that very, very first scene we get with the fireman. And, mm-hmm. um, I would, I, I, I believe also that this, plan whatever it is is occurring outside of time and space as as we understand it and that agent cooper you know i i don't think that he actually you know sat there for 25 years and 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 did nothing i believe that this whole thing was um there there's multiple instances of of cooper multiple coopers even as far back as fire walk with me um sort of existing simultaneous to one another and that the first loop we see um which has Lara in it um and then seemingly disappear and then the second loop we see Lara is gone however the doppelganger is Cooper's the Cooper's doppelganger is out in Twin Peaks or uh, out in the reality that original cooper came from so he can't leave until that one comes back in and then this third one we're seeing is okay now that the doppelganger is back and that laura is gone now cooper can actually leave the red room and um complete this portion of the plan whatever that might be but um yeah or what if I this think was that what if this is a reality in which the doppelganger never existed like what if this is a reality in which right. like Mr. C never even um never even came out into the world. You know, I think because it is. if it's a reality, you know, perhaps in which Laura was never killed, then, you know, all that would never have happened. I don't know. That's just uh I I think that for sure because <clears throat> the whole well isn't the whole concept of Cooper's doppelganger that Agent Cooper entered the Black Lodge with imperfect courage and therefore his soul was destroyed and the destruction of his soul created that aspect of himself um, mm-hmm. that Bob was able to um, sort of hijack and then take out into the world. But yeah, I, I at, at the very least, um, I don't think that the world we're seeing um, was affected like by... Uh, Mr. C. I think they were seeing something, which that's why I'm. I think this has something to do with Audrey's storyline because, um, if Mr. C never existed, then by proxy Richard never existed, and perhaps mm. Richard needs to exist. That is simply just uh, an aspect of Cooper, and then rather than existing as his child who was corrupted by like Lodge 
energy or whatever, just being Mr. his doppelganger's son. Now Richard is this sort of amalgam of Coopers that we that mm. we see. Um, again, I mean, there's no way to really know, and I don't think that's the point. But no, no, no. Um, but the the fact that we're witnessing the same thing but slightly different is just you know solidifying this idea that there are certainly this plan is taking place across multiple timelines and that the red room is the sort of conduit space that um it will feature all of these different real or aspects of these different realities as they change because the past dictates the future so by going and affecting Lars past that affected everyone including Cooper and Diane and Laura's future um, which then affected how that red room scene went um, right. and it, I don't think that this is the first t- or second or probably third time that this happened and um, that's sort of why we're seeing all of these different um, ripple effects of, mm. of what Cooper did by going back to 1989 yeah, I definitely agree with um, the premise that what we're seeing is like a cycle of some sort. That we are seeing manifestations of various loops playing out here. Because I just don't think otherwise, why would we see literally the exact same events play out in slightly different ways in the Red Room the way that we do here? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, every version of events that we see here is like the same, but a little bit different, depending on the circumstance. You know what I mean? Right. It's like this thing had to happen, but how it happens is affected by um, what happened previously. And then if you go back and change that, this thing still needs to happen, but it's going to happen differently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, in, uh, in part, again, unknowable. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. That's not, I just said unknowable. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, yeah, that goes without saying. But yeah, in part two, we saw a version of events in which. Um, you know, Cooper confronts the evolution of the arm who reminds him about his doppelganger. And then we get that weird split that we talked about way back when, where it looks like the red room breaks apart from itself somehow. And there's that image of yeah the curtains in the red room, like becoming superimposed on one another. And then Mike starts freaking out and says something is wrong. And, you know, Cooper tries to leave the red room, but he can't. He like runs into like a solid wall or something like that, and mm-hmm. all the chaos with the arms doppelganger and him falling into non-existence and all that happens. And that that I believe happened only because Mister C was out into the world. Where yep. what we see here I is agree. that what we see here is that he goes and instead of being reminded about his doppelganger, he says, you know the arm says, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the line? And personally, I believe, I believe he is referring to Laura. That's what I believe. Um, because mm-hmm. of what happens immediately afterwards here and the way that this is cut together, because as soon as he says that we get another shot of Cooper, a close up of his face. And previously, this is the shot that had led into his flashback with the doppelganger, but instead what we get is what I take to be a flashback of Laura whispering in his ear and then screaming and flying upwards and all that, you know, and then Cooper seeing Leland who tells him uh, find Laura. That's the way that I personally interpret it. Um, I'd agree agree with you. 
And I think you can even maybe make a case that the Leland we see in, I think it's uh, season two finale where he says, I did not kill anybody. Um, Right. It could also be like a, um, just, just hinting at the, this whole idea of that Lara's gone. Like Lara's not killed. Lara's now gone. And that the story of the little girl who lived down the lane she lived there. She doesn't live there anymore. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I don't know. I don't see who else that could be referring to. And I think it's definitely <laughs> a good case that you right after see this uh, Cooper's memory of yeah Laura um, of of the final shot that we get. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Massive significance to it. Yeah. It's like what we get at the very end. It's like we get Laura Palmer. Who you know? Anytime somebody references a little girl in Twin Peaks, it's like, where does your mind go immediately? It's Laura Palmer, right? Uh, and then we we see her, you know, down the lane on her street. Um. So yeah, I don't know. That's just that's the way that I read it. I believe that that line is in reference to Laura. You know, I pretty much always have. Um. But yeah, so we see Cooper exit the lodge here and what's very notable about this particular time that he exits the lodge is that rather than going up to the curtains and seemingly meeting a solid wall or even just you know grabbing the curtains and tearing them apart he does this weird hand wavy magician thing like as he's walking towards the curtain and even before he gets there Mm -hmm. It appears as if he's causing the curtains to to ruffle, and he just sort of effortlessly steps through out on Glastonbury Grove, and that to me is like a huge yep. indicator that this is like <laughs> this is like the super duper Cooper, you know, like this is yeah. this is some lodge some lodge ass Cooper that we're looking at here. Yeah, he's in control in in a yeah. way that we. We haven't seen that character in control in that environment yet. So now, now that we have, I think that's a that's a good primer for for like what happens because even though the 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 scooper that um, exits the lodge and, and that we see for the remainder of this episode is um, even though he is kind of stoic, you can really tell that you know he has a plan and he is he is moving forward with his plan and there is absolutely nothing else going on there and i think it's really typified by the fact that like he manipulates the the curtain to open in his like t- first strides towards it as opposed to getting stonewalled by it and then uh banished into the mob zone where he had really very little agency and very little control now he does mm-hmm. yep so cooper steps out into glastonbury grove cool moment was glad we got to get one more look at Glastonbury Grove here. I think the only other time we got a, a taste of it was again in part two, where Hawk very briefly goes to visit goes to visit uh, Glastonbury Grove. And I believe doesn't he see and, the curtains, or does he? Um, uh, well, it's a little ambiguous because he's looking around with his or, flashlight, and we right. sort of, as an audience, see the curtains start to fade in right. and then it's that moment where we start to see all the red room craziness that happens there. Right. It's like right. a transitional shot, but it's hard to say whether or not got it. Hawk actually sees the curtains. So, yeah. 
So Cooper, he meets with Diane, who is out there waiting for him. Presumably, this is what was referred to when Cooper says, see you at the curtain call. And yes. I know I've mentioned this to you before, but I, I'm kind of obsessed with this moment that happens here where they meet, where Diane says, is it you? Is it really you? And Cooper just looks her dead in the eye and he says, it's really me, Diane. And this moment has always really haunted me because just the look in Cooper's eyes here as he says, it's really me, just such a profound hollowness to it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's very clear that it's not really him. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's him, but he says it with, there's such a, I don't know, there's such a feeling of loss to me in this scene. Like, this is the moment where I really said to myself, oh, this isn't, this isn't Cooper. As he's literally saying, it's really me, Diane. He just has this sad, faraway look in his eyes as he's, as he's looking back at her. And this is just one of those moments where I feel like the subtlety of Kyle MacLachlan's performance just really adds to the the brilliance and the layeredness of everything that happens in this episode. Yeah. And, and from here on out, he maintains that and it never overtly um, like pushes you over the edge into thinking that this is a totally different character, a totally new character. Um, and it, it's just, and I know we already talked about how, how wonderfully acted this character is, but again, I just can't get over how, even though there is something unbelievable about this incarnation of Cooper, um, you still, as a, at least me as a viewer, I bought into it. Like I completely bought into, um, that this is just simply, this is another, yet another aspect of Cooper. And I think it really brings forth that the question of, well, who, which is the quote unquote real Cooper, the true Cooper. Um, we want it to be the one that we know and we want it to be the, the heroic Cooper that is optimistic and fun and, and kind of campy and cheesy. We definitely don't want it to be the psychopathic murderer, um, (laughs) and serial rapist, but, um, it, it, this is probably the most, um, I don't know, not, I guess, even tempered Cooper that we get. Um, and who knows? Is it? It's definitely not the Cooper that we know, but we also don't know Diane beyond this season. So is this the Cooper that Diane knows? I don't know, but I think that um, probably this not. question of probably not. I don't know because we don't. We never see her. She's a tape recorder, like um, <laughs> right. But it's definitely but not. We that do Cooper. know that Diane. We do know that Diane knew him back in like the nineties, right? And also the way that. Um, the, the way that Cooper smiles when he first sees Diane in part 17, um, it's, it's, uh, it's probably the widest you ever see agent Cooper smile. Um, mm-hmm. it is this, and I, I have to imagine that that was the direction he was given. Um, like you are overjoyed 
to see this person. Yeah. Like this, the, the look on, on Kyle McLaughlin's face when Nido turns into Diane is elation. He is so happy and they embrace and they share a long, passionate kiss. Um, and that is, um, that's, I mean, that's the, the Cooper and Diane that I want to exist and that I I think probably is the Cooper and Diane that, you know, is referenced in the original show or in Secret History, like their relationship. Um, but that whole sequence is sort of um, hinted at being, I won't call it not real, but like unreal. Um, and it's as soon as Cooper sees Nido, that's when his face gets superimposed and eventually says we live inside a dream. Um, so I don't know. I guess there's just something really, um, there's something really outside of like my grasp when it comes to this scene of like, well, is this really Cooper? Cause it's not, it's not any Cooper that I know. Um, but, and I believe he says to Diane, is it really you? Um, yeah. But, um, and, and also the extent of Diane's involvement in this whole thing, we can we know that she is involved and the first thing that Cooper asks her is do you remember and she says yes I do so um, I don't know uh, also I just wanted to quickly point out um, Diane the character has uh, she has red hair and then white and black nail alternating nail polish on her fingernails yeah yep. uh, I noticed that right away because we get her face, um, super, uh, the black, uh, sorry, the red room superimposed over her face. And then we get this weird sequence in part 17 where we see like, uh, something like what, when the tulpa dies and you get that like popping eggshell sound. Uh, and then we get this weird kind of looks like a mirror circular object that half of it. Um, like the left half then displays Diane's face or half of Diane's face, which I thought was something really kind of weird. And then she turns back into um, Diane. But that half of a face thing kind of tipped me off to the fact that like this isn't a, uh, perhaps isn't a complete Diane the same way that this isn't a complete Cooper. This is like the, I don't know, the fairy tale ending version in that sure. perhaps what we're seeing is uh, the other half, that that more um, stoic, dark, kind of mm. bleak side. I don't know. Just I thought that was really weird. We didn't really talk about that in Part 17. I thought that was a really weird uh, sequence, like Nido turning back into Diane. And uh, yeah. I haven't yeah. fully grappled with it yet because <laughs> how can yeah. you? Um, but, yeah, just my <laughs> yeah. thoughts. Some- it's so possible, yeah. I mean, it stands to reason that the Diane that we see here and in the previous episode is not the Diane of old, just like the Cooper is not the Cooper of old. You know, it's right. her journey through these, you know, metaphysical realms and, you know, her sublimation into Nido and, uh, you know, her being raped and taken to the convenience store. It just seems like there's no way that she can emerge from that the same. So we're, we're seeing, right. we're, it's safe to say, I think we're seeing versions of people that are not really equivalent to the versions that 
<laughs> existed before they entered the you know uh left this plane of reality you could say right or since cooper intervened in laura's death maybe yeah sure that too yeah so yeah this this diane here she throughout this episode is much much different from her tulpa you know she's the tulpa was very very type a very assertive you know this real fuck you attitude this diane seems very meek by comparison she seems apprehensive she seems scared she's very um she seems pretty dubious of this whole plan you know in this next scene here where she and cooper are driving in this car towards you know the the 430 mile mark she says you know are you sure you really want to do this we don't know what it's going to be like you know it seems like right up until the end she's trying to convince him that it might not be a very good idea but cooper just has complete mm-hmm. tunnel vision on this and he has a mission and he's going to use diane in a very real way to uh right. complete that mission yeah i don't know if diane this diane i think everything she pretty much everything she says is a question like is it really you yeah. are you sure you want to do this mm-hmm. um and then when they get into the motel room it's like what do we do now right Everything is yep. questioned from this character, even the t- her tone that she takes. Everything is uncertain, is like you said, juxtaposed to the Cooper who is steadfast in in following through with this plan. That, and as we know, is certainly not favorable to Diane at all. Oh uh, no, he, she is used <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, they drive the four hundred thirty miles, which. This is what 430 refers to. It's not the time that Andy meets that weird truck driver guy. Right. It is the number of miles that they must travel from, I don't know, Glastonbury Grove, presumably. Uh, yeah, we don't, we to, don't know what direction. Yeah, or to, what yeah, we don't know where exactly the, uh, we don't know where the odometer is starting here. Um, but yeah, so Cooper. He drives exactly 430 miles. He gets out on the side of the road. And he starts looking around at what's there. And he sees this structure. I don't know. What do you call this thing? This thing that holds all the power lines in place? Do you know what this is called? I don't know like what it's called, but I would just basically call it. It's like a, it's like a tower that is, that is holding up all of these power lines. Right. Yeah. But I'm sure, I'm sure it has a name, desert. but I just don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. It's just like this. It's this, a power tower. It's a, it is a tower of power. And oh, I love that band. Many people have pointed out that this structure sort of looks like the Judy symbol, right? With like yeah. the two yeah. hanging symbols. Um, you know, the yeah. two ear-like things that sort of jut out and then go diagonally downwards. Uh, and some yeah, people, I, some people I think believe that this is actually... Supposed to. You, you think that that's actually what it's referencing to? Because, I, you know, it's hard to say because, you know, Judy also, or at least, okay, the experiment that we see 
has has little horns coming off of it, but the the silhouette mm-hmm. of it is not exactly the same. It doesn't have that weird little bend toward the ear shape, but right. this structure definitely has that. So, a lot of people believe that the Judy symbol is actually this. It, it like it signifies this um, this entry point into this other realm. That's what I think. I, well, I just think that it's a it's like a a marker, and if you take like what happens with Richard pretty much it seems as if he is almost like a blank slate that is relying upon all these various clues um like Judy's diner like to tell him where to go like uh and I'd imagine that this that this is um like just the entry point and so you're saying that like the image on Mr. C's card was probably referencing this power line and not necessarily like I mean I don't know I don't know if I believe that some people definitely believe yeah, that. Yeah, but know. that's the supposition. Yeah, that is what some people believe, for sure. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and I think I think that if you chose little... to read it that way, I think that I think that it's not not totally unreasonable. Yeah, I think it's apples to apples. Like either way, I don't think that it is a coincidental that this this thing yeah. looks just like like all uh the symbols that we've seen. Also, like Philip Jeffries you know says here's where you'll find judy and displays that symbol and um wait he, he I, shows the i, I think symbol. that that oh yeah you're right you're right um oh yeah that's true well either way he says this is where you'll find judy and um to me that line really has stuck with me because like he sends like what i think what he means by that is like the sequence of events that occurs from here on out is where you'll find Judy, not necessarily like 1980, right. February, whatever, 1989. But either way, I think that this yeah. symbol is is meant to just remind us of, or remind mm-hmm. Cooper of, of uh, that this is the spot yeah. where the, the switchover happens. Sure, yeah, and Mr. C and Cooper, they're both they're both looking for, for Judy in a way. Like, and Mr. C is, is looking for a portal... To get him there in the same way that that uh, that Cooper is as well, um, right? Of, of different types, obviously, but you know, it just it makes a kind of makes a kind of intuitive sense, I guess I would say, for the symbol to uh, be read as, as two different things. Yeah, uh, definitely. Everything on this show is like that. Nothing has a clear, sure. direct, yeah, one-dimensional. Yeah, explanation. I mean, yeah, it cannot be emphasized enough. Like nothing in this show ever just means one thing, like ever. It's it's, it's just like a yeah. never-ending duality. So yeah, Cooper, he's looking up at this thing. He hears the electrical wires pretty loud, which we, we don't need to explain the significance of that. I feel like people get it by now. Mm-hmm. It's like electricity. Mm-hmm. We know we know what that means. So. He gets back in the car. He tells Diane, once we cross, it could all be different. And then they kiss. Clearly, neither of them knows exactly what awaits them. I think it's safe to say that Cooper has a general idea that they're going to cross over into some different reality of some sort. And Mm -hmm. that they have to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, to lead to his ultimate goal, but it's pretty clear that he is at least a little apprehensive 
only because he doesn't know exactly what it's going to look or feel like to get there. Yeah, I think he understands at least a little bit that it's going to change his um, their personas. They're not yeah. going to be like it's not going to be just like a simple it's just us in a different location. They're going to assimilate into the role of a different version of themselves and they don't know. It could be great. It could be terrible. They have no idea. Or at least Cooper yeah, has exactly. Cooper has no idea. Even if he's even if he is the one who is like putting forth the plan uh, or is including Diane in the plan. But yeah, mm-hmm. they 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 certainly don't know what they're getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. They keep driving for a little while, and all of a sudden, it shifts to nighttime. Whereas before, it was in the middle of the day, and they've crossed over. And we get the shot of the two of them, just their faces, looking stoically. Neither of them acknowledges the fact that they've crossed or anything like that. And then we get, yet again, that classic shot of the car driving down the highway at night from the first-person perspective with the two headlights. I mean, it's just, it's again and again. It's not even the last time in this episode that we're going to get that. I think Lynch just really loves this idea of, like, representing, like, the road at nighttime as, like, a descent into the psyche. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, it's like in classical literature how, like, when characters go into the woods, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like their subconscious acts out. Um, Yeah. I think there's a bit of that going on here. Mm Mm-hmm. Cooper and Diane show up at this motel. Cooper exits the car and goes in to check in to the hotel while Diane waits in the car. And at this moment, she sees another version of herself peek out from around the corner. And she just sort of observes it without comment. And I I always took this to represent some form of dissociation in Diane's mind Mm. because she knows what's about to come next, which is that she's going to have to have sex with uh, a man who looks exactly like her rapist. And I always read this as being her way of sort of, uh, like I said, dissociating from that fact and protecting herself in a way. I don't think I don't think that we're literally seeing a tol- another Diane Tolbert or anything like that. I think it is purely psychological. I I I would tend to agree because it's dressed exactly the same. She doesn't right. react to it. There's also this odd uh, light that kind of moves across her face uh, while she's looking at it. I don't really know what to make of it, but it's it's definitely there. I watched it a few times. Um, yeah, I, I think that we're. Among other things, we're seeing, or at least we, the viewer, are being told that there is a fracturing, yet again, of this personality. And maybe that could have something to do with the fact that we only see half of Diane's face in this weird Mm. Black Lodge mirror thing in Part 17. Um, It could also potentially be that this isn't the first time that this has happened, and maybe it's some sort of, like, you know, the end of 2001, where, like, 
Dave kind of like watches himself age because he's right in this weird like out of time thing. Um, I mean, you could maybe go that route, but I think that it's more it's more like thematically sound that this is a foreshadowing of the um the fracturing of of Diane's personality and yeah. that that has already happened. This is just yet another mm-hmm. in, incarnation of that. Yeah, and this is just a huge, huge recurring theme in Lynch's work. The idea that the human mind splits itself to try to protect itself. It, it's really been mm-hmm. a mainstay of his work since Lost Highway, where it was like very explicit there, pretty explicit in Mulholland Drive, and then in Inland Empire as well. Yep. Like, this is just um, a way that he he likes to represent, you know, coping with trauma. It's something that clearly resonates very deeply with him. Yeah, and it's from the whole, like, you know, you can go back to Persona. Like, this this concept yeah, has been explored. Like, this, the, the, uh, like, the exploration of the self and, like, even going into, like, Jungian psychology and, like, all this stuff, like, the shadow self and... Um, like it's it's clearly something we've seen in Lynch's work and just film in general for the last you know 50 years so um I don't I would not think that like of all the things to take literally in this show I don't know that Diane's literally seeing Diane too in in this spot especially since it (laughs) it does just it, it materializes and then as soon as Cooper walks out it's gone it's not like Mm -hmm. um I don't know yeah. But I, I would definitely yeah, read little, it more thematically. Yeah, and like you said, the fact that she's wearing the exact same clothes is the giveaway for me. You know. Yeah. Um. So Cooper comes back, and Diane follows him into their motel room. He steps in. He walks over near the bed. She closes the door behind her. She turns on the light. And Cooper, in a very direct, almost commanding kind of way, tells her, turn it back off. And she says, like you mentioned, what do we do now? And he tells her, you come over here to me. And he is incredibly cold, very businesslike throughout this entire interaction here. There's no, he doesn't say any comforting words to her whatsoever. Doesn't appear concerned with her mind state at all. He just knows that they have to do this thing. And so they have sex in what is possibly the most upsetting sex scene I've ever seen. Oh, it's up there. For a sex scene, like a you know, an actual two people yeah. having consensual sex, like it, yes. I don't think I can think of any other examples that are this, that are nearly this dark. This is incredibly disturbing, on a lot of levels. There's so much to unpack with this scene here. I mean, first of all, it's set to, of course, my prayer by the platters which we previously heard in part eight. So immediately, you know, it's fucked because it's the same song from part eight. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in which 
you know, the woodsman is crushing people's heads and, and whatnot. We all remember that. Uh, only except this time, there's this ominous drone beneath it. It's not just the song. And Yeah, this very weird drone. Yeah, and the song sort of comes in and out, right? Like, it disappears yeah, for a little it, bit. Yeah, it stops before the first chorus. Yeah. Yeah. And Diane is on top of Cooper... And she is very obviously going through some shit here. She is clearly struggling. She's clearly emotional. And Cooper is just completely emotionless. He is utterly stone-faced. And this is really where you have to think about, like... Just the Mr. C-ness. I don't know how else to put it in in Cooper. Because this is... You have to imagine, like, this is what Mr. C would be like during sex, you know? Like, he's not going to be a a caring partner. He's going to be an emotionless void about the entire thing. And, you know, Diane having the baggage of being assaulted by Mr. C... In this scenario where she is, again, completely a pawn in this whole game. You know, she is she is merely a tool. Like, her her trauma is not taken into consideration whatsoever in, in any of this. And it's just, it's so unbelievably heartbreaking to me in this way that she covers up cooper's face you know she she can't even look him in the eye you know presumably because he has the same face as the man who raped her and destroyed her life and she's sacrificing her emotional well-being for for this plan and it's you know it's not just that we're seeing cooper and diane who are these two characters that had been speculated about for a long time. Like, did they have a relationship? Was Diane even real? All of that. There's that baggage, but then there's also the baggage of this is Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan. You know, this is Jeffrey right. and Sandy. This is, you know, this yes, is Lula exactly. and Paul Atreides. It's not, it's these two iconic figures from Lynch works past. And we should enjoy seeing these two people together in this situation. We also know, you know, it's obviously getting a little inside baseball here, but we know that Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern dated for quite a long time also. So this scene is just, it's such a, it's so confrontational in so many ways. It's almost like, I find it pretty overwhelming. And I have since the first time I watched it, it's, um, God, it's so, it is so unbelievably complex and so disturbing to me. I I can't get over it. (laughs) It, I would use the word violent. Like it's violent. It's, um, it feels that way, doesn't it? Even though, like you mentioned, it's pretty, it's, it's like ostensibly consensual, but it it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way, does it? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I think we should even say off the bat, like, this is clearly some sort of uh, ritual, like some sex yeah. magic 
thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's not, uh, you can immediately juxtapose this to Dougie and Janie E, which is just two people getting it on <laughs> for, for the sake of getting it on. That's normal. Like That's normal sex. <laughs> yes. Arms flapping, all kinds of business. Uh, yeah. Normal. But, totally. No. We all do that, right? Yeah, dude. Flap my arms every time. Chicks <laughs> love it. Um, <laughs> but no, but like seriously though, this is like, I, I use the word violent, not even meaning like non-consensual. It's v- uh, like violent in that it's an assault on your senses and your emotions. So like right. I would rank this, you know, among like the, you know, the, the most joyless of scenes in the return you have, of course, Richard <clears throat> uh, robbing his grandmother. You have uh, Richard hitting the little boy with the truck. Um and and you have this like I rank this you know, kind of just as high on that list uh, or or at least you know in the ballpark because it's taking things that you know from the plot and also like saying taking things like you were saying that you know culturally or at least some of us know culturally and really forcing you to sit and observe this. Uh, it's it's i don't know i i'd have to think that someone like david lynch and i really hesitate to put too much stock in my um you know my in my, i don't know how to word it like i don't want to presume that i know what david lynch was thinking while he was writing or filming these scenes um, sure but i do have to imagine that he probably views sex as a beautiful, amazing, like magical thing that you can create people out of, like just knowing how how like his his all his words about the positivity of life and love, and that sex should be a, an expression of that. And for him to depict sex in this way, um, it's it's uh, it it gets to me on a very emotional level. It's sort of attacking my concept of safety. And, you know, I felt safe around these characters, and now I don't. And I think it's, you know, in in a way, you're sort of identifying with Diane because Diane hasn't felt safe this entire time. She has been apprehensive and nervous and scared, and you now know why. And you have to, like, I think the fact that my prayer cuts out, um, before she starts sort of uh, reeling is on purpose because you have this this song and then this juxtaposition like this drone um, and I also I don't know if it means anything but My Prayer by The Platters for a pop song is incredibly dissonant uh, non-music nerds might not know what I mean but like there's a the second chord in the song is a diminished chord which is just very a very tense um, it's a very tense harmony, and the song itself is in a minor key, but it's mm-hmm. this sort of ode to love, and my prayer is to linger with you. Like this, it it is almost like, 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 yeah, violent is the only word I can I can use. It's like it's really forcing me. Uh, it's 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 hitting me over the face. Um, with some sort of like uh an emotional. I don't even know how to put it. It's 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 it took my emotional stability in it, and it uh it like 
it just raptured it. It, it completely, uh, it took me to a place that I didn't expect and that I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I yeah. think that's much, much like Diane. And, and even though she, I, I would not say that uh, this is non-consensual, um, I think that this character knew what was going to happen, but I don't think she was... Um, I don't think it matters. I wasn't happy about it. I don't it. think anything would matter like that. Yeah, it didn't matter. You can you can know that you're about to get, you know, you can know that something bad's about to happen and then doesn't make the thing happening any any better for you. Yeah. Incredibly rough scene to watch. So loaded on so many levels. Did you know there's a guy named David Lynch in The Platters? Yeah, I did, actually. I learned that today, <laughs> weirdly enough. I I because I love the platters and I've uh, been I've been listening to a lot of fifties music because in January I'm uh, running like I'm directing a fifties show at work like I, I work with oh, nice. students who uh, music students so I'm doing a fifties one so I've been listening to a ton of fifties stuff and just uh, really digging into the platters but yeah that's funny I, I read that today no relation of course <laughs> no just it's just one of those things like okay all right sure. yeah it was like. It was like the uh, the two women in the roadhouse. One of them's name, last name was Lynch, who yeah. wasn't related to David Lynch, but the other one was related to David Lynch in some capacity. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was his wife. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like, okay, yeah, this is this is the show we're talking about here. Um, yeah. This is... God damn. It's... Uh, an incredible scene, but also, also at the same time, just like next to impossible to watch. Like I just feel like I need to watch it, you know, through the holes in my fingers or something. It's just it's one of those kind of scenes. Cooper wakes up the next yeah. morning, and he is in a different motel room, and he finds a note, which reads, "Dear Richard, when you read this, I'll be gone." Please don't try to find me. I don't recognize you anymore. Whatever we had together is over. Signed, Linda. Um. Thoughts? <laughs> well, um, look, there's there's a lot of ways you could read this. One interpretation. Sorry, I just Perhaps, I had to dump that um, on you like that. I couldn't resist. Yeah, no, sure. I'll 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 talk for a while and sound like a fool, <laughs> and then I'll let you do it. Um, so there's all right. So we definitely know that this is somewhat part of the of the plan that we were hinted at in the very first episode because of obviously Richard and Linda. Um, right. Now, uh, what I would read from this, right? I don't recognize you anymore. Um, I think that must have something to do with, um, or I think it could have something to do with, with Diane putting her hands over Cooper's face. This, uh, you know, this, this character, Diane certainly does not want like this face, this persona is tainted, uh, to her based on her retention of maybe her Tulpa's memories or her own memories and from a different timeline of Mr. C. So, maybe um and if you if you want to go the route that because i really think by the end of this episode you kind of can 
you you don't, you don't have to, but most of us end up making like a judgment on whether or not the plan, because there's definitely a plan, whether or not it was successful. Um, and if you are of the mindset that it was unsuccessful, perhaps that could be that the the memory, because this whole show has been about memories. The memory of even though Mister C is eradicated and is technically doesn't exist, uh, the memory of that trauma lingered. And when you get into the the Richard and Linda characters who are uh, different different markedly from from agent cooper and diane um they ostensibly were their own people who had their own relationship and it could have been uh, i think it certainly was affected by the diane and cooper reality and that so maybe this whole thing didn't go as planned uh for based on the fact that Diane remembers everything, even the terrible things, and that it caused this Linda character who is like tangentially or not tangentially, but like marginally is Diane at least um in some way to to flee and to want nothing to do with Richard, and maybe that wasn't the plan, and that's why things get all screwy or uh. Perhaps it just this was the way it was supposed to go. But I, I, I'm really put off by the fact that Cooper, or I'm sorry, Richard, reacts to the name Richard uh, as if he doesn't remember exactly, right. um, <clears throat> which he we know he is supposed to. So, um, to me, like the the really the only big question like not even like how did he get into this different hotel room and why is he somewhere else i think that was clearly the result of this ritual that they performed to me it's whether or not linda was supposed to be there um i i'm leaning towards the fact that this was part of the plan um but i'll maybe get more into that later because it has some more to do with carrie page but that's Hmm. my two cents at least yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it just doesn't matter if uh, Linda or Diane, however you want to refer to her, maybe it just didn't matter if she stuck around or not after this. Maybe it's like her right. purpose had sort of been fulfilled at this point. So regardless of how this played out, Cooper was still going to head to Carrie Page's house, you know, like by himself, like. I um we don't really get any indication that Diane was part of the plan beyond this point. So we don't. Yeah, so I guess it, Go ahead. I was going to say we don't we don't get any indication. There's no like empty slot for her to fit into no. beyond what we've already seen. Um mm-hmm. and I think perhaps perhaps she knew this. Um, and I think that maybe a stipulation of this entire thing is that if they're going to go through with it, it, what it really means is that they're not going to exist anymore. Um, but I'll get, kind of get more into that as we go on. Um, because I think there's some, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say too much. We'll, we'll, (laughs) we'll keep going. (laughs) Yeah. So regardless, Cooper is alone now and, this sex act that they performed clearly triggered something, as we've discussed. 
what exactly has happened, impossible to say, but evidence would suggest that they they had this sex for a purpose and that the purpose was to transport them into this new realm here where Cooper is able to drive to Odessa, etc. Now, he is obviously in a different motel and he comes out and he actually gets into a, a different car as well. And um, he begins his drive to Odessa, Texas. <laughs> Where exactly he is now, who the hell knows? Um, or how far he has to drive to get to Odessa. But on his way, he makes a pit stop at Judy's Diner. Just a totally coincidental name that I'm sure doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, nor does the fact that there is a white mechanical horse just sitting directly outside. I'm, I'm sure that's of no significance yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, no, um, not at all. But I, I, I don't know. I think from here, from he- this point onward, um, I think we're dealing with Blank Slate Cooper, who is relying almost solely on these visual cues that uh, we see his that Richard character keep having. Like, mm-hmm. um, th- whether these are um, like that. That's sort of what I was getting at with the whole, um, like the the judy symbol as like at the 430 mark uh mm-hmm. like they're just sort of indicators for this character who is sort of his memory is almost fully uh fully like geared towards uh just recognizing these very basic symbols um mm-hmm. and very intuitive things just to sort of lead him like he's on rails toward this yeah. inevitable goal yeah, it just seems like everything that we're seeing here is indicating, like, we're in Judy's house now. <laughs> you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Like, including some of the stuff that we're going to see once we get to, to Carrie Page's house. Um, yeah, and so Cooper, he uh, decides to make a pit stop here. He walks into the coffee shop. Um, this waitress here, who played by Clint Eastwood's daughter, weirdly enough. Um, hmm. Yeah. It is Clint Eastwood's daughter. She asks him if he wants coffee, and he just sort of, like, nods, like, sure, whatever. Which, alarm bells, <laughs> like, once again. Right. Just like with Mr. C in the previous episodes, you know, denying coffee, you know, Cooper would be like, like, damn right I want coffee. Yeah, it's so weird. He just stares at her. And she just pours it yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, just totally nonverbal. Like, yeah, whatever. Fine. I, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, right. Apologies for this dog barking its head off currently. Um, so he asks this waitress if there's another waitress that works there. And the waitress seems to immediately have a sense of exactly who he's referring to. Maybe like. Carrie Page just has this aura of weirdness around her where <laughs> like this other waitress knows like oh if there's something strange and there's strange men looking for for her then it's probably Carrie Page right that was just the vibe I, that I, I get. initially I initially thought that she was just like like what I'm not good enough for you you need another way like what did I do <laughs> but no oh, I, right. I think yeah, that yeah. 
I don't know. I I um I have a really weird feeling about this whole thing and um I'm not exactly like reading it like this is happening um in a an equivalent reality to like the ones we've seen in Twin Peaks. Like this whole thing has a very lucid dream feel to it, which I think I've talked about before. Um where it's almost like there's this like everything everything that happens just sort of follows this odd sort of dream logic. So like yeah, she would know exactly who he's referring to because like this is some sort of a dream or is functioning like a dream. Um and but I don't know. That that's just more based on the the feeling that it, that I get from it more than like a, a literal interpretation, I guess. Like I don't know if this is literally a dream, but it feels like this and it feels like all the characters in this scene play out the way that they would in a dream that I might have. Cooper is sitting at this table and he sees this table of three guys in cowboy hats start to harass the waitress. He tells her, tells them rather, to leave her alone and they get pissed off. They come over to his table and one of the men points a gun at Cooper And in a very James Bond-esque move, Cooper quickly disarms him and then shoots two of them. And there's one guy uh, remaining who he hasn't shot, and he tells him, you know, put down your gun. The guy says, I don't have a gun. Cooper insists, put down your gun. It's a very, very classic Old West thing here. Um, Yeah. Yeah, what stuck out to me about this is the fact that the impulse to stand up for the waitress and to want to protect her is a very, very Cooper impulse, but the viciousness and the precision with which he takes out all these guys is extremely Mr. C. (laughs) And that's what I think ultimately the point of this is. It's like, just to underscore... The fact that this Richard, quote-unquote, version of of Cooper is sort of split right down the middle between these two um, polar opposite facets of his personality. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think if we can can entertain the thought that this is the Cooper who spent all that time in, in the Red Room... Um, and if we take Hawk's word that it will utterly annihilate your soul, um, I think that's sort of what we're seeing. Like we, like he's not his own. He's not the doppelganger. He is just like uh, a completely splintered version of Agent Cooper that that maintains the qualities of uh, both of those things. But he he himself, like his sense of self, is annihilated and. Uh, it's on display here because like you said, he, he on one hand stands up to the, to these, uh, these like thugs. And then on the other hand, completely mercilessly uh, just, you know, shoots one. He kicks one guy like square in the dick, like as hard as (laughs) I could imagine. Um, It's brutal. But like, yeah, like that's just the, uh, we're, we're certainly seeing that this Richard character is a, uh, is contains shades of uh, both characters that we know. 
did I get that wrong when I said that he shoots two of them, or did he only shoot the one guy in the foot and then just like yeah, he shoots the one guy and he yeah, he just flat foot boots him (laughs) right in the crotch and he goes down. Very important correction there. Make sure (laughs) we get that right. And the other very uncooper like thing that he does here is he sort of weirdly waves his gun around in the direction of yeah. the customers in the diner I, here. Very strange. And his fingers on the trigger. Like his fingers yeah. on the trigger the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That that bugged me. <laughs> it's like, what are you yeah. doing? Yeah. It's almost You're like the way because he does like a full 360 circle where he just like makes sure that the gun is pointed in everyone's direction at one point it's yeah. almost like he just wants to make sure that everybody there knows that he's boss you know it's like it's well, almost like he's yeah, trying and then, to intimidate them for some reason very very well strange. i think he is because he like almost like extorts the carrie page's address out of that other waitress he basically points a gun at her and says yeah give me her address it's not different than like empty the drawer it's like i want a thing and you're gonna give it to me um and then in potentially the weirdest move of all time he dispatches with the other guns by putting them in the fryolator yeah interesting choice (laughs) yeah this I don't know this for a fact, but it really strikes me as being one of those things that maybe they got to the set and David Lynch was just like, I have an idea. He'll put the guns in the fryer, you know, like it just seems like one of those things to me because it's such a weird thing to write because it doesn't serve any real is, purpose, yeah. you know, like we didn't need yeah. that moment. But this seems like one of those things like you're there, you're on set and you're like, I know, I know it'd be super weird if you put the guns in the deep fryer. <laughs> That's one of the dream logic things that I was referring to. It's like he looks at the deep fryer the way that you might like, I don't know, like you ever have like a dream where you like you're looking at something random and then all of a sudden it has some purpose just because it's there. It's like a Chekhov's gun. It's like, right. mm, well, there's a deep fryer here, so I guess we got to deep fry some stuff. And gee, I got these three guns in my hand. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, that's a great way to dispose of them. Or it, it could be another indicator of... Richard's ambivalence toward the safety of others because he goes like basically like hey I don't know if these bullets might explode you you might want to move back like or mm-hmm. don't I don't really give a shit like <laughs> like it, it, I'm gonna do this even though it might cause an explosion and destroy first of all like fucked up their whole day like they're not gonna be you gotta empty all that oil like if someone yeah. orders fries they're gonna have to wait at least 45 minutes and that's mean because <laughs> everyone wants their fries with their meal like yeah <sighs> God damn it, Cooper. Very morally ambiguous. <laughs> yes. He's denying everybody quick and immediate access to French fries, and that is frankly unacceptable in Texas. So Yet 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 destroying instruments of death in the process. So hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Texas folk, they don't they don't take kindly to your destruction of guns, alright? Alright, Mr. Right. Mr. Fancy FBI man. Uh so yeah, he like you said, basically indirectly threatens this waitress into giving him Carrie Page's address and he says in the most non-comforting way possible it's okay I'm with the FBI oh man Even though, that, like, that line's so bad yeah it's a far cry from no. I am the FBI exactly yeah that's that's what it is it, it's almost as off-putting as Mr. C's 
uh, like denial of coffee in that Tony's like, no, thanks. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. It's like the same deal. It's mm-hmm. like, don't worry. I'm with the FBI. Yeah. Which is actually an accurate phrasing of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> if you ask me, but that's just me. <laughs> this is really the point in this episode where the first time around I'm beginning to think to myself is this really what this episode is? <laughs> like <laughs> what the fuck is going on right now? Like where are we? Why did I just watch this weird ass diner scene with these cowboys? This is like there's like half an episode left. And <laughs> this is what right. we're doing. It's this pretty wild, man. The real the real estate is like you know, diminishing as we go. Like, there's no time left for me to know what's happening, and you're making me spend all of this time watching, quote unquote, Agent Cooper deep fry guns and wave <laughs> his own gun at strangers without teeth. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, functionally, this scene is this is how he finds out uh, where Carrie Page lives. That you know, that's the on paper reason that this happens but the 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 window dressing is is among the most bizarre and absurd uh with with such little time left to wrap up a story that of course ultimately doesn't get wrapped up but we should have known by this moment and i think i kind of did yeah absolutely he takes the address he goes to carrie page's house and he sees the number six pole interestingly enough which we remember from the Fat Trout trailer park and also from Andy's vision where we see it turn from black and white into color. Mm-hmm. And we also hear the the electricity. Don't know what that means, but interesting nonetheless. I just think it's indicating that this is still part of the... still part of cooper's plan i think cooper was uh, just meant to see this as like yep you're in the right place Mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah i I guess that's probably a good read on it too it's like it's the signpost right yeah so he goes and he knocks on the door and we see cheryl lee a quick inside shot of her walking to the door and i really start freaking out at this point (laughs) yeah like what the fuck so she answers the door and before you can say any before you can say anything she asks did you find him uh cooper seems a little caught off guard by this question he's like no and this is probably our first clue that carrie page her life is a bit complicated and mm-hmm. she's clearly involved with some shady business. We never get any real idea of the true nature of it, but clearly Carrie Page is is up to something. She's um her life is has gone off the rails to a certain extent. Like just the urgency with which she says that would would suggest that to me. Yeah, well she she also like when he knocks, she goes, "Who is it?" And he just says FBI and she's, yeah. that's when she swings the door open and yeah. says like, did you find him? So she's in contact with the FBI apparently, 
yet has a dead guy in her living room. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. He. She. She most certainly does have a dead guy in her living room. Um. But first, Cooper is surprised that she does not answer to the name Laura Palmer. In fact, she claims that she has never heard that name in her life. He mentions that her parents are Leland and Sarah Palmer. And when she hears the name Sarah, it seems like something is triggered within her, doesn't it? That name gives her pause, almost like there's some latent Laura-ness deep within her psyche that is just like ever so gently prodded at with the name of her mother. Uh, Yeah, I would love to hear what direction she was given, you know, how to react, because her reaction really does like you can really you can really see in her eye movement that this shakes something in this character, although it's, you know, it might be similar to like some of those moments with Dougie where you you swear Cooper's about to emerge because he sees cherry pie and there's this look in his eyes like there's a remembrance there, but it's uh, it's still shrouded by this other um you know affect in this case carrie page's memory of herself as carrie page but yeah it's just a brilliant piece of facial acting from Cheryl Lee. Mm-hmm. yeah and Cheryl Lee is adopting a full-on southern accent for this too so that Hell lends yeah. credence to the idea that at least for me that this version of laura that we're seeing named carrie page is somebody who has lived out an entire life as this person and that it's not just like Mm -hmm. Laura was saved uh, by Cooper and then she moved to Odessa or something like that. Like to me, the accent is communicating the fact that she has lived her whole life from her perspective as Carrie Page. Yeah. Or, or at least she has the, the memories of an entire lifetime. Yeah. That's Um, what I mean. Right. Which, which is really like kind of, I don't know. That's another apples to apples thing. It's like does it doesn't affect how the character would act or um, anything like that. So, but yeah, she's, um, I like I want, I just want info on Carrie Page. She's got a whole interesting story <laughs> going on that we yeah. very quickly dispatch with. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting. Um, and everybody get your get your drinks ready here, but uh, in the special features, there's a moment where they're doing some stuff in the Red Room with Laura, and uh, you can see Cheryl Lee going over some stuff with, I don't know, it's probably like the script supervisor or something like that, and you can hear the person reading out some, some lines, and they refer to to her character as Carrie Page in the Red Room. Like, hmm, really? then Carrie does X, Y, and Z, which I thought was very odd. Ooh, really? Yeah. That's really interesting. But she's credited yeah, as Laura little, Palmer. Little food. So. Right, yeah, she is. Um, yeah. But I just... Like in this moment, I was like, "Why are they, why are they talking? Why are they referring to her as Carrie Page here in the red room? That's very strange." When she's like, "That is in odd. her whole black dress, Laura get up," you know, right? 
That is yeah, pretty fascinating. It's just like one another reason why like I'm just dying to read the script <laughs> because I just feel like it would shed light on a lot of stuff. But I know we probably never yeah. will, but we can again we can dream. Yes, we certainly can. So uh, Cooper lays out this whole vague plan for her where he, he tells her, I think you're actually a girl named Laura Palmer and I want to take you back to your home in Twin Peaks. And she's confused by this. And Cooper has the most prescient line of the episode where he says, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. At least it was told Thanks. to us. At least, at least it was directly yeah. told to us. It's pretty hard to explain. Good luck. Yeah. Hey guys, don't worry about it. Just take let's let's just take this trip to to Twin Peaks, shall we? And Carrie seems perfectly content to go along with this plan. Maybe she's just looking for any excuse to get out of her weird corpse-laden house. Um but she invites Cooper in and she says like, "Hey, just like give me a second to, you know, pack a bag or whatever." And Cooper's out there, and he immediately sees a dead guy in her chair, which uh, we erroneously stated earlier in the season, uh, based on some misinformation, was one of the hitmen that Janie E. meets with. Uh, it is not, in fact, the same actor. I'm sorry to say. Um, but he appears a little bloated, almost like he's been dead for yeah. a while. And, yeah, there's like uh, a fly what- that lands on him. Yeah, and presumably Carrie Page just doesn't really know what to do with a dead body. So, one thing that I didn't notice before, but I, I noticed this time around for the first time, is that there's a fucking machine gun just sitting on the floor. <laughs> like, we get a brief really? wide I didn't shot. Really? I that. Yeah, uh-huh. It's like, um, it's like a brief shot where you see, like, the chair and the mantelpiece and everything. And, like, way in the bottom of the frame, there's just, like, a fucking there's just a big ass gun like a like an automatic weapon just laying on the ground interesting Interesting. presumably that's what she shot this guy in his head with (laughs) perhaps or maybe that that's what he showed up with that was his weapon right maybe we'll never know so cooper sees this doesn't comment on it not really his concern ultimately i suppose and he turns and he sees a figurine of a white horse on the mantel shelf. Just yeah. good. Against a black plate. Uh, yeah. Which to me was like a personific Erica symbolization of like the horse is the white of the eyes. Yep. And that's it's what just, I took from it. Yeah. It's just, it's the symbol for like bad shit is happening here. Like it's yeah, just historically that's that's what it means, and I thought it was brilliant that they gave that give us that that little touch in in this moment here. So another odd touch is that a phone just starts ringing, and Carrie just doesn't answer it, and I don't mm-hmm. know about you, but like when a phone starts ringing in a movie, I'm just like it just makes me really anxious. I just like want people to answer yeah. really bad, and every time I watch this, I'm just like, answer the phone. Why don't you answer <laughs> like, the phone? It's like, yeah, it's like Mulholland Drive. It's like so many people answer the phone. It it yeah. it, it sets you up to expect in the Lynch movie when a phone mm-hmm. rings, 
Um, but I think that's, I think that was the point. I think it mm-hmm. was, at least uh, that's what it did to me. It made me anxious. Um, it was unresolved. You know what I mean? Uh, almost yeah. maybe like a, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but maybe like a, it, it, it at least emotionally foreshadowed to me this, uh, incompletion, this, this unresolution, uh, at least a feeling of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of what I mean when I say that this episode is simultaneously extremely grounded, but extremely nightmarish. It's like, everything that's happening feels plausible, but it's just tweaked in such a way to make it really distressing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like just a phone ringing and nobody wants to answer it, and there's like a machine gun on the floor. Like, it's just, uh, just like these unnerving little details. <laughs> Uh, it's like if you took someone's face that you know and then you go put it in photoshop and you like move their eyes a little bit further apart or make their nose a bit off center and you're looking at it and your brain's registering like this is that thing that i recognize but there's something very different and very wrong about it even if it's not like and i don't know if this is like if i'm misattributing this quote but I, I think I heard or read that uh, David Lynch said that <clears throat> his like idea of horror or like the most horrifying you can make something is like you know ninety percent what you expect or ninety percent uh, normalcy and then ten percent is off like that is more scary than than something that is like an overtly sca- like you know like if you're watching. Inland Empire versus like you know the Nightmare on Elm Street like one of them is a clearly like fantastical horror movie while the other one is like toying with your uh your very like it's it's toying with a lot of things like how to watch a movie and how to how to identify with characters and but it's horrific because it's almost what you expect it's almost normal but it isn't and putting your finger on what's not normal about it is like a very uh, disorienting experience. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, Cooper and Carrie they um they pack up and uh, they are off to Twin Peaks, <clears throat> and they go on a very long, seemingly very awkward road trip where. Cooper doesn't say a single word throughout this entire thing. He doesn't ask Carrie any questions about herself whatsoever. Doesn't ask her how she's feeling. Doesn't explain what they're about to do. He is very mechanical and very single-minded in his focus here. And this sequence here of them driving... It's quite long. And I think it's I think it serves an important purpose because I think that this is when we're really given an opportunity to very seriously ruminate on this situation. You know, these these two characters, Laura Palmer and Cooper you know, these arguably the two most fundamental elements of Twin Peaks, you know, Cooper and Laura are they're like the uh, you know the, the the twin strands of the 
the double helix of the the DNA of this show. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you think Twin Peaks, it's Cooper and it's Laura Palmer. Right. And this long sequence here, we're really given the opportunity to think about these characters and what it means that they're here together and reflect on the journey that has led us to this point and wonder a lot about where it is that they're going to. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the dark road as a metaphor for a descent. You know, it's, it kind of reminds me of like, um, like Silent Hill, you know, particularly Silent Hill yep. 2, where there's like this long ass staircase at a certain point in the game where you descend for like two straight minutes. Yeah. And there's no point to it whatsoever except to just build tension and really leave you with a lot of a lot of complicated thoughts, you know, and then there's like a giant hole that you jump down into that's like dark and you don't know what it what it is. And mm-hmm. that this sequence here reminds me a lot of that. It gives me a similar feeling as that it's this long it's this long mysterious descent into we don't know what but we sense it's probably not going to end well and we're given the information that they're indeed heading to twin peaks this place that has filled all of us with wonderment and excitement um but there's none of that you know like on one hand, that's why you're wondering where they're going because you'd imagine like, oh, they're heading to Twin Peaks. Cue the theme music. Uh, let's let's have a nice little uh, trip back to Twin Peaks. But of course, like we, that's not at all where they're going in any sense that we would understand it. Um, and it almost reminded me of like when you see um, filming locations from movies or shows that you like like on Google maps and it almost like sucks them for me, at least it like kind of sucks the magic out. Uh, like, I don't know. I, I kind of don't like seeing, uh, these, these places that were presented to me in a certain context out of context. Like, like when they crossed the bridge into twin peaks, you know, I, you know, I thought about Ronette and what that, all the symbolism, but it was like, the show, the thing that I'm watching is completely devoid of any of that homecoming. Like we got the homecoming in part 16. Uh, we got the, uh, at least the emotional homecoming, you know? And then when it finally happens and you know that it's happening, you're, you're left with this just long, dark, somewhat awkward car ride between two characters who, uh, you know, based on all that we understand about the show fundamentally shouldn't exist at the same time. Um, one of them, Cooper has only ever gone to Twin Peaks because he found out that Laura was dead um, and that he had to solve her mystery. So, you know, just the, the whole thing is um, it really forces you to sit there. And um, I think, I don't know what you're, I don't think that there's any supposition of what the viewer is meant to do, but I know that I certainly found myself um, trying to just, you know, retrace my steps and, and figure like, well, okay, they're going to the Palmer house, but like 
for what reason? And is there anything that happened that I can, that I can maybe that can inform me? Um, but also it, it, it created this like almost like emotional chasm where you are, you know, like we're given possibly like the most fantastic thing in Twin Peaks. We have Cooper and Laura together on their way to Twin Peaks to go and we think try and uh, find Judy, right? Like the central mystery is like right there to be solved. But I think that this, what this long ride is doing is it's creating this, at least for me, it created this like a, like a void almost like an emotional void. Like it went on for too long that I, I couldn't possibly sustain this like excitement and instead, it turned into just a, an awe. I was in awe yeah, of what I was seeing. It's very much, it's decompressing you rather than building you up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And while it does build tension, I think it also sort of cuts tension. Like with, with you know, Carrie's random non sequiturs. And uh, it, it, it does a really great job of really not giving it, it it's management of expectations is I think pretty profound because it, it, it by all means should have been a crazy exciting thing, but there's no music. There's barely any dialogue, virtually none. Um, and all that you are left with is in your own interpretation of just what the hell is happening and what's about to happen. And um, I think it kind of creates a bit of a singular experience. I doubt that any two people experienced this sequence the same way because all in that silence, all you're going to do is fill it with your own noise, your own thoughts, your own theories and interpretations of what's happening. Everyone, everyone must have. You're forced to because there's nothing left. There's just silence in a very banal visual uh, and your thoughts. And, um, if that's not by design, then it's just, I think the reality of what a scene like that would do. Cause it, it goes on for what, like f- between like five and seven minutes, I'm guessing like quite a, quite a while. Yeah. I, I just remember watching this scene and towards the end of it, just looking at the clock and thinking to myself, We've got 10 minutes left in the series, and we're just driving, baby. Like, we are just right. in no hurry to get anywhere. Like, and I think that's when the acceptance started to set in for me that we weren't going to get pretty much anything answered. We weren't going to find out what was up with Audrey you know, we weren't going to find out, you know, anything about any of the insanity that happens in part eight. There was just so many loose ends that we're going to get um, just completely left wide open. And this is really where I started to say to myself, like, yeah, like I, I, I knew it. Like this, there was no way that this show was ever going to end. And something that wasn't like a heartbreaking cliffhanger. There was just no way. I mean, I had always felt that way. Like, there was never a point in the season where I thought to myself, they are going to just wrap this up in a nice little bow 
and people are going to be left, you know, happy, satisfied customers. And that's it for Twin Peaks. Yay, everybody. Like, I just didn't think that that was in the cards whatsoever. And this whole sequence right here is really when that reality began to sink in for real. Um, Yeah, yeah, it it, it really does... um... It it really does like force you into that acceptance. Like I was in the same boat where, you know, even though I didn't, I never expected there to be a, like a, a nice, uh, you know, happily ever after. Um, you know, seeing yeah, there's ten minutes left and we're we're still on the road. Uh, so yeah. whatever happens is gonna be all that happens. So I hope it's cool. And, um, I would I would personally would 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 say that it is, but um. Hmm. It yeah, certainly so, certainly did not meet any expectations. Yeah, so not much really happens here in this scene, at least in terms of action. We do get this moment where they are both seemingly concerned about this car that's behind them, this pair of headlights that we see in the background. Carrie Page is concerned. She mentions the car. She thinks they're being followed. She looks behind her. Cooper just sort of keeps an eye on it from his rearview mirror, and then the car drives off the road. They stop mm-hmm. at a gas station, which is like a Valero gas station. Do we think that that's just like to establish a time frame for here? Like to establish like we're we're in modern times, you know? We're not in like, we're not in like the 80s or whatever. It it could because we do have like the first car that Cooper and Diane drive is like a '60s looking car, right. and yeah. um, then we have the more modern car in right. the Odessa scene. So it could be. Also, Carrie mm-hmm. mentioned being hungry, and Cooper says that they'll stop to get food. Maybe this is that. <laughs> right? Is a good guy Cooper getting our gas station hot dog? Yeah, some Slim Jims for the road. <laughs> <laughs> Really sad we didn't get them snapping into a Slim Jim during this scene. (laughs) Um, Like you mentioned, Carrie says a bunch of... You call them non-sequiturs. To me, they're like just little tiny... Tiny snippets that indicate that her life has been somewhat of a lost life. And that she has had some hard times. Just She says... Um, what does she say here? She says, Odessa, I tried to keep a clean house, keep everything organized. Those days, I was too young to know any better. Um, I don't know. Like, to me, that evokes maybe, like, a marriage gone awry. Like, mm-hmm. maybe she got married really young, and she had a husband who was, like, a real hard ass, and maybe was, like, abusive towards her for you know, not keeping the house clean or something like that. I don't know. That's just like uh-huh. one potential read from, from what she says here. But I do think we're just sort of meant to take away that uh, you know, Carrie has had a a hard and potentially unfulfilling life. That could be a um, another indicator of like her mind state when she sees the, the, the headlights and assumes that she's being followed. There's this like underlying maybe paranoia or just negativity right. about her that we, we keep seeing brought back up in small ways. Right. 
So, yeah, they crossed the bridge into Twin Peaks. I couldn't tell. Do you think that this is Ronette's bridge? I thought it was. I thought it I thought so, like too, but I wasn't similar. entirely I sure. Like it's definitely what I... Yeah, it's definitely what I thought about when I saw it. Yeah. Um, so, they drive into Twin Peaks, and they drive by the Double R Diner, and it's the same Double R Diner, but very notably, it doesn't have the... Um, doesn't have the double R to go sign on it. So it's like, this is Twin Peaks, but it's just a little different. Like we're saying, it's like, it's, it's reality, but it's not quite (laughs) the one that we recognize. Yeah. It's just exactly. Yeah. And Cooper at this point is asking Carrie, like, do you recognize any of this? And she's just like, nope. And he pulls up to the Palmer house and he's like, do you recognize this house? And she, you know, she says she doesn't, she doesn't recognize it. She doesn't know where they are. And Cooper and Carrie, they get out of the car. He grabs her by the hand and they begin to walk very slowly towards the front door of the Palmer house. At the, I have never been on more pins and needles than this moment here. Like, <laughs> this oh, is God, just like, seriously. this was unbearable. Like, waiting to find out what was going to happen here. Because at this moment, you're just thinking yeah, the like, gesture literally of, anything could happen. Yeah, exactly. And the gesture of, of Cooper reaching his hand out to Laura, to me, just, it was like, put on your seatbelts, like, get ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something's going to happen. Yep. Yep, it's like David Lynch holding us by the hand and walking us through this very painful what it felt finale. Like, yeah. yeah, so exactly. Uh, they walk up to the front door. Tension is extremely high. Cooper knocks on the front door, and again, just amazing acting from Kyle here. Like the look on his face as he knocks on the door. Like he's keeping his composure, he's keeping it together, but he has this very wide-eyed look in his face, like. Like, deep down inside, he's scared about what's going to happen. And he doesn't know exactly what right. is inside here. Just a brilliant bit of acting from, from Kyle McLaughlin. And really throughout this whole scene. The way that he simultaneously, uh, you know, conveys a, a, like a, certi- like a certain amount of certitude. And at the same time, just total bewilderment. <laughs> you know? Right. It's really... Yes. It's really remarkable. He's so he's so goddamn good. Anyways, he's very apprehensive as he knocks on the door. The door opens and there is a woman that we do not recognize whatsoever. And I think most people know by now that the woman who opens this door is the real life owner of this house. Her name is Mary Reber. Which, when I found this out, was just, like, utterly shocking. (laughs) Like, this is just not, this is just not the kind of move that I really associate with Lynch whatsoever. Like, um, I don't know. It's just, like, such a, I don't know, I don't know if, like, it's a direct fourth wall break, per se. I don't know if it really fits that definition, but to cast the real-life actress here just... I don't know. It's just like it's such a such an uncharacteristic move for for Lynch. I I felt like 
Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think is that, he, you know, the intention was to certainly have it be the door be answered by someone that you do not recognize at all. Right. Right. Um, and so maybe he just met that lady, and mm-hmm. he was just like, "You'll do." Like, sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's just do her. Yeah. He just um, liked the idea. Her, of... her act. Sure. Go ahead. I'm gonna say her acting chops are like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. Uh, that of a who's not an actor. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. Interest. I don't know, man. Just by this point, it's just like, it's just added to the list. <laughs> yep. Um. So Cooper promptly introduces himself as Special Agent Dale Cooper. Mm-hmm. So clearly, he still he still knows who he is. He yeah. still has this. He still in his head he has this identity as Dale Cooper. He doesn't um, introduce himself as Richard or any such thing. He is. Dale Cooper, representative of the FBI in his own mind. And he asks for Sarah Palmer. And this woman insists that she's never heard of a woman named Sarah Palmer. And this news is surprising to Cooper. And he asks her where she bought the house from. And she leans off to the side and says, Honey, what was the name of the woman we bought the house from? And she comes back and she says, Mrs. Chalfont. Who we all know we all know and love as the friendly older woman whom Laura brings the meals on wheels to. Um, it's also the woman who gives Laura Palmer the framed photo in Firewalk with me that she would later mm-hmm. Uh, enter and etc. We all know how that goes down. Yep. And that's a jarring piece of information to us as an audience. Um. And yeah, Cooper. She... Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say she's also above the convenience store and uh, yeah. has a trailer in the Fat Trout underneath which Chet Desmond finds the owl cavering and then disappears. Yeah, lots of little lots of little tangential connections here that kind of make this make a an odd amount of sense. <laughs> the idea that yeah, there would be a lodge presence such as lodge presence such as Mrs. Chalfont uh mm-hmm. in this house. And I think it's just meant to signify that, you know, Cooper, for all his best laid plans, the evil has already gotten there. Like, it's one step ahead of him, and that he's screwed, basically. Uh, Reinforced by the fact that he asked this woman, what is your name? And her name is Alice Tremont, which is the other name (laughs) for... Mrs. Chalfont. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cooper doesn't really know how to respond to any of this. He's really kind of at a loss. Mm-hmm. Totally baffled. He just sort of looks at her sheepishly and and says, "Well, uh, sorry to bother you this late at night." <laughs> and right. He and he and Carrie just 
I mean, they they go and they walk back out onto the street because, I mean, what else do you do? <laughs> um, he thought that he was going to run into Sarah Palmer and she wasn't there. Clearly, his plan failed. It did not work. And right. this is really the first time where we've ever seen Cooper be this baffled, this caught off guard, this not in control. We've just, we're, we're so used to seeing him from a position of authority and it's just very jarring to see him in this moment where he is completely on his back foot and obviously you know just totally totally out of control and he all of a sudden appears stricken by a thought that he finds terrible which is what year is this and from there we get a shot of Carrie looking up at the Palmer house and just sort of lingers for a little bit. And what we hear faintly is the sound of Sarah Palmer shouting Laura's name from the pilot. You know, that Laura. It's very faint as if it is coming from inside the house. And this appears to have triggered something or other in Carrie Page, a.k.a. Laura Palmer. She lets out a scream, which we know that Cheryl Lee does extremely well. It is arguably the thing that she is known best for. And we get a quick cut to Cooper looking very shocked over at her. And lights go out. Everything goes dark. We sit for a second. And we come up on some slow motion video of Cooper sitting in the red room. And Laura whispering in his ear. Credits. And that's it. If that wasn't the most heartbreaking time seeing starring Kyle McLaughlin, <laughs> then I just don't know. I don't know. It's such a dagger. And, oh. it, and it, that shot lingers for a good, like, you know a good like 10 seconds almost before those yeah. credits roll um almost being yeah. you know teasing at the idea that something else might happen anything nope mm-hmm. nope mm-hmm. that's it yeah the um the the blackness between Laura screaming and that shot lasts for quite a while and then that shot itself lasts for quite a while before we see the credits and it's just so painful <laughs> so painful <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, I just, it's really difficult to articulate exactly what I was feeling 
in this moment here. The best way I can describe it is I just felt I just felt gutted. Like I didn't I didn't have a hot take as far as like oh that was amazing or oh that was bad or like none of that was really in my mind at all. I just remember feeling like I had seen something really profoundly disturbing and that I was going to have a really hard time sleeping that night and that it was going to take a while for me to be able to shake this off and really begin to think analytically about what I had seen. It was a very it was a very upsetting experience, you know, the the aftermath of this for me. Me uh for me it wasn't so upsetting as much as it was um like uh, I was in a state of bewilderment and I can only compare it to like, you know, sometimes if you, if you put on a piece of music, that's like not starting from the beginning, uh, there's this like weird experience that I've had where like, you know, if it's like, uh, like if I, if I get it, come into the music out of context for a brief moment, I don't know where one is. And I'm just sort of like kind of trying to find where this like song is supposed to begin. And there's like a few seconds before I do and it's just like I'm sort of like lost in this soundscape and then all of a sudden I'm grounded and I know where the sequence begins. I, I felt like that. I felt like I was just like so much happened in such a short period of time that I was almost uh, like in a state of like suspended animation uh, mm-hmm. where I was like, um, oop. I, like, I, I knew that I didn't understand it. Um but I didn't, I didn't get the, um, I didn't get the like inherent negativity that I think a lot of other people did. Um, it was more just, uh, I was more, I was confused. I didn't know what to make of it. Um, yeah. And I want to clarify for a second. I when I said that again. I felt, yeah, I just want to say like, when I say that I felt upset, I don't mean that I was like mad at the show or that like, I couldn't believe like, Oh, this is going to be how it ends. I mean, I felt like I was like really shaken up. Like I was very, yeah. I was deeply shaken by what I had seen, but I, I, in a way that I couldn't really have articulated to you at the time, that's all I meant. Not that I was like, Oh, what a satisfying, what an unsatisfying conclusion or anything like that. Yeah. And I I don't even mean negativity in the sense of like dislike. I mean, negativity in the sense of like that this was an unambiguously bad quote unquote ending, uh, or that there was a, that this was like a, um, or that, like, you know, the plan was completely foiled, and that's what we're left with. We're left with just the fact that Cooper failed and his hubris led him to this point. Like, um, I didn't really get that from my initial viewing, um, and I still don't necessarily feel that way. Um, but I I do know that it, it affected me in a way that kind of, it, at, for like, I spent like a, about a week on Reddit, you know, just reading and responding to people's theories and, and all that kind of stuff and talking on Twitter to you and other people. And, um, but after that, it was so, uh, it was so like, I've used this word a billion times on this podcast, but it was so evocative that I actually felt like I had to step away from it. And I ended up stepping away from it, uh, until we did this podcast, not because I was, put off by it but because i was satisfied with the emotional payout that i got um 
and maybe that's just me. Maybe I was, maybe all along I was, I was not, I was hoping maybe that there wasn't going to be a uh, concise resolution and that I was really looking for something that I could chew on for over a year, uh, into the future. But, um, I, I, um, I'm not necessarily of the mindset that we got a wholly negative ending here. Um, I think there is some real significance to the fact that the lights in the Palmer house go out. Um, the electricity goes out. The thing that has, um, we've been told like the thing, the thing that, um, so what I'm looking for, the thing that like propagates all of the evil in Twin Peaks is electricity. Like it's, you know, that's how they travel. We, we, we assume, or we're told, and that's what goes out. And it's Laura, it's Laura's doing that, that, um, that makes this happen. And I can't help but think of the fireman saying, uh, it is in our house now. And at first I thought that that was just like a, like a, you know, a metaphor, like something bad has happened. But I, I think that the word house might literally refer to the Palmer house because that's what we see. Um, uh, well, first of all, we see the firemen create Laura Palmer directly in um, response to witnessing the, the birth of Bob. And we see the Palmer house like in the, the frame of um, like that portal that Mr. C was trying to go through, like through the fireman's house. So uh, if he created Laura Palmer and that she lived in this house, I think that would be enough to, to say that uh, that is the house they're referring to. And it is in our house now could be referring to, you know, the fact that we have what seems to be lodge entities in, uh, in literally in the Palmer house. Um, so everything that happens from, um, Laura disappearing to, um, Diane disappearing, it all in my mind was according to the plan. And if it, um, if it wasn't, I don't think that we would have been given all of those those hints that we were given throughout the show. But um, more, don't you think Cooper's demeanor suggests that it did not go according to plan? Well, like, I don't about... think that he's. I was gonna say I don't think that he was the one. Laura's the one. Laura was supposed to execute this all the time. He he who used all of these characters. Um, was used himself. He his only function was to bring Laura to that house, where she she was the only one who could, who could affect it. Cooper's sleuthing and all the all that he could actually do was get Laura to that point, and Laura's the one who was supposed to do it. So Cooper, for all he knows, did fail because he this whole time he has given himself like the singular responsibility. It seems of. Um, of, of of executing this plan or at least he is like the singular agent of, of this plan and when he is rendered powerless yeah he he completely stutters and falters and basically unravels and loses 
all sense of what to do because there isn't anything left for him to do. But if like if it if that had happened and then Lara had just stared at the house and it just ended, I would be a hundred percent in agreement. Like everything failed and hopefully there's a fourth season so we can see maybe if they, you know, circle back and try to fix all of this. But the fact that Laura Laura recognizes herself, um, which is I think what the the uh, her her hearing her mother's voice symbolizes. She recognizes who she is, why she's there, and it does uh, cause the electricity to go out in that house. And my the so the negative bent of it though is that. It, it seems to indicate that like everything was destroyed. Like, you know, the house, the electricity went out, but everything went black. And then we see the whisper. And I don't think that there's anything literally being whispered into Cooper's ears, similar to like my father killed me. But I get the sense that there's this sharing of information that at the end of this road, neither of them will exist. They're going to have to, somehow or another enter this space that is inhabited by Judy, we can presume. Um, And once you go in, there's no getting out besides destroying it. And that could be the significance of like Cooper's utterance when uh, of his, you know, his disturbed like grunt when she whispers to him the first time um and then seemingly disappears voluntarily like that's what i guess what i'm getting at is that like when i first watched this i thought that like judy stole laura and put her in this place and that cooper was there to rescue her but i don't think that's what it is i think it's more along the lines of like laura was actually the you know the the biggest piece in this plan and that she at the end of all of it sort of retained her um I don't know if agency is the right word, but retained herself, retained her sense of self, and uh, which is to be, quote unquote, the one um, who was created solely in response to um, either the creation of Bob or Judy's emergence into, or the experiment, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know. It's it's obviously something that like you could you could read a bunch of different ways, and the other side is that. Perhaps this is the perhaps fire walk with me was the quote unquote good ending for Laura because she stops herself from being possessed by Bob and we see her at the very end um, free. She's she's done. She she got her angels back. She's crying and laughing and smiling. That was her, you know, happily ever after. But that's not. But here's the thing. I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. this ending effectively undoes that ending, and that's why I yes. like. I I understand what you're saying, like from a like from a plot perspective, but it's impossible for me to read this as anything resembling a happy ending. Like there, there's I'm not just, saying it's a happy ending. I mean, at all. But I mean. You're saying that like she fulf- like she fulfilled her purpose and that um you know whatever plan was in place here was ultimately successful but I guess what I would say to that is like even if it was like 
at at what cost? Because effectively what's right. happened here is that Cooper has undone that ending that we got in Firewalk with me by basically perverting reality in such a way that Laura Palmer is forced to come back here to the literal scene of her trauma and become reminded of it all over again. I mean, you said yourself, like, she is herself again once she hears her mother's name, but, I mean, you have to think about, like, all that comes with that. Like, all the horrible abuse that um, comes flooding back into her mind, and, I mean, that scream is, is what that is. I mean... I don't right. know, like, I don't necessarily read all the lights going out as being a sign of, like, oh, well, obviously it worked, and that's that. Like, I I read it very much the opposite, actually. Like, I don't think anything went down the way that Cooper planned it, and I think ultimately Cooper, in doing this to Laura, effectively places him on the same plane as just another abuser towards her. And I think that that's what's so haunting hmm. about it is that this this protagonist that we've been following since, you know, 1990 um, ultimately is complicit in the destruction of this young girl. And by extension, we as an audience, by rooting for him to do this, by, you know, by feeling nostalgic and by wanting the show back we are effectively undoing that ending from firewalk with me as well you know for this show to exist we need for laura to be dead and so Mm -hmm. you know by undoing that we're really we're really what this ending reveals is that we're really sort of being dishonest with ourselves in doing it and i think that that's what is really haunting about it is because there's a certain amount of implication, not just of Cooper, but of, of us as the audience. Do you know what I'm saying? I definitely know what you're saying. And I guess I should maybe reword what I said. Cause I don't, I definitely wouldn't classify this as a happy ending. I guess all I was saying is I don't believe that what we saw was like some, uh, I don't think it was like necessarily Judy getting one over on on everyone like that that's all i was saying like there's um like cooper's i all i was trying to say is that i think that whatever the plan was it worked i'm not even trying to make the case that the their plan was a good one at all in fact i'm kind of in agreement with you that the the whole plan to like bring laura palmer back from the dead to destroy judy this ultimate evil it's almost like a it's almost like a thought experiment of like well what would you do like would you shoot a baby to cure all the cancer in the world it's like one of those scenarios where you're forced to um like like you said look at what it would be like if you if that firewalk with me ending never occurred if cooper never stopped trying to you know uh right the wrong or right the ship or however you want to look at it like my my question is like should we really look at um the fireman and cooper and philip jeffries and mike as good characters with good intentions because i don't think their intentions are necessarily good but i think that their intentions are there's a war and there are they are 
there's some sort of war going on between them and then this Judy character. And right. Cooper was sort of uh, his his fatal flaw is his hubris and the fact that he brought himself into this situation as an imperfect being. He was manipulated by both sides and neither side really cares i don't think about the um like the the goodness or the well-being of any of these characters lives including laura's so like if laura was um like the only reason that the the uh the arm wanted laura to put on the ring and fire walk with me was so that they could harvest her her pain and suffering um but when that happened, even and so notably, Cooper did not want that to happen. Um, we don't really know why, but again, he was. If we take that ending as a a quote unquote positive one for Laura, where she is shown happy, crying, surrounded by the angels that she lost, um, the Cooper in Fire Walk with Me was not on the right side of that, and I think that's that's the the Cooper that we've seen acting upon this very strange esoteric plan. Um, but I guess I was, I guess I'm not looking at this as a happy ending. I guess I'm just not looking at it as like a, um, like I, I think the plan worked. I just don't, I'm now questioning the, the positivity of the plan itself. Um, and maybe that we're being asked that question. Like what is the, at what cost, you know, at what cost is something like that? Um, does this, something like that come? But again, we could have this conversation tomorrow and I might have a different take. It's just one of those things like, you know, watching it, um, these last couple times, I, I couldn't help, but feel like, um, up, up until the, up until Cooper stumbles and asks what year it is, it really does seem like everything is going completely according to plan. And then to have, his moment of confusion be met with Lara's moment of realization to me just seemed like, well, that was the plan all along to get her there for her to do that. And that uh, does possibly effectively undo um, her happy ending. But I don't know. It's just one of those. uh, I, I definitely agree with everything you're saying too, about Cooper being complicit in her, uh, in Lara's trauma and abuse, similar to Leland and similar to, to Sarah, possibly by extension, or basically any other character, the um, male character that she interacted with. Sure. And um, I think that it it further fragments this idea of the hero character, the perfect Agent Cooper from season one. He, we and and I also like I really like the commentary that you brought up about us, the viewer by extension. Um, wanting a a return to Twin Peaks. However, though, I will point out, I never asked for this. Um, David Lynch came out and said we're making it. I know they did, but I'm saying that's certainly not, it's not like David Lynch got a million fan letters that all said, please make Twin Peaks season three. And he was like, oh, well, you asked for it. Like, I'm sure there was, this was his, he had an idea and he chased it down. It can't be as hollow as he made an entire season of TV just to spite us all. Um, but I, at the same time, no, can no, definitely see... not. I mean, that's just that's just part of what's going on in in this 
this season. I mean, as we've discussed throughout, you know, there are many ideas at play here, but I do think that this finale is meant to disquiet us. Like, there is nothing about the filmmaking in this final episode that suggests to me that, you know that there's any glimmer of hope or positivity whatsoever. Like, I think we're really meant to be left thinking about the implications of what we've seen. And for me, like every road leads down, <laughs> leads to the idea that, um, like this was bad in some way. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't want to change the past. You shouldn't want to go back. You shouldn't want to go home. You know, there's a reason that this thing is called The Return, and it ends with a return that goes horribly, horribly wrong. Right. And leaves us with the two, you know, arguably the two most significant characters in Twin Peaks history at a loss and terrified. Like, I don't know, I don't know how to read, I don't know how to read anything other than that into what happens here. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, I think you're right. And there's a, the, yeah, you're right. The the way that this whole episode is filmed, it does not give you any indication that there is any positivity happening. Uh, and I don't think I'm, I'm not even trying to say that what happened was positive um, at all. It, it well, except that perhaps, you know, if you, this, um, this, this destruction, quote unquote, of the Palmer house if it is inhabited by these terrible spirits, sure, that's a positive thing. But overall, I guess I'm questioning like the, um, like you said, like the, the whole, the whole process of going back in time and stopping Lara from being killed just to use her, to bring her back to this spot of her trauma. Um, I guess I'm, Ah, yeah, now that I'm thinking and now I'm talking it out too, it's more like the people, the characters we've been rooting for this whole time led us here. Um, I guess that's more what I was trying to say, not necessarily the, the dark forces. Like the the forces that we have, or at least I as a viewer, rooted for in some aspect, they brought upon this result. Not necessarily, it wasn't their... their thing wasn't subverted this was their their plan and um that could definitely play into what you're saying about how the um you know why you shouldn't want to go back you shouldn't want to make it so that pete can go fishing and even if pete does go fishing at at what cost it's like another ripple effect of all of that so i think that people will have this conversation and this you know like this um juxtaposition of ideas with this finale like forever until unless there happens to be another twin peaks which i personally don't think there will be uh maybe we can talk a little bit more mm-hmm. about that but i think yeah. that this yeah i think that's a good point too that this is a return and um it's simply not it's it's not like the it's not like the X-Files reboot or like uh, anything else Thank that God. just sort of yeah, brings you back into the fold as business as usual. Um, and also the 
the like the subtext of like chasing the mystery down to the point where you will um completely destroy yourself and reality in the process is a very lynchian idea um the whole thing was the mystery was who killed Lara Palmer and once that thing got out then the next if there's going to be another mystery the next one is going to you know i think almost like that shot of Lara whispering in in Cooper's ear it's like a writing of wrongs it's like Lynch saying like i he had his golden goose and then it was taken from him and now he got it back and this is uh, this is what you're seeing like that inexplicable like this is what happens when you go down this road uh, you wanted a mystery you got a mystery and um, I don't know uh, the the episode as a whole just leaves you feeling icky after you leave and, and you're mm. left with it thinking about it um, and so I guess my overall point is that that feeling of ickiness for me, I think is coming from the fact that the people I thought who were the quote unquote good guys turned out to be responsible for this very bleak and dreary resolution. Um, rather than the actual forces of nature of evil that we're, um, told about in the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think you and I are, are basically on the same page, I guess. The only point I differ on is that I don't necessarily think that this plan, quote unquote, necessarily was successful. And like, I don't personally, I like, I don't, I don't personally see any evidence of that, but I do, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, and I also don't think that even if this plan was successful, I don't think it was necessarily, uh, yeah, I don't think it was necessarily noble. <laughs> you know? That's yeah, that's the word. There was no nobility to all of this. It was all a means to an end that perhaps we don't understand and ex- outside of our mm-hmm. confines of morality because it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like any of those characters, Mike the fireman, Philip Jeffries, none of them are moral. There's no moral like components to what they're doing. No one at, like no one ever says like let's find Lara because that's the good thing to do. It's just like that's the thing to do, and perhaps you are left to decide for yourself if it was, if it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's um, it's it's a serious can of worms, and it's I don't I don't think any of us are gonna ever really stop thinking about it. It's. Um, this ending to me is just so, so multifaceted. And I think what resonates to me, I think the reason it sticks, the reason it sticks in my mind is because it has this element of truth to it. This idea that you can't go back and that this desire to return to, you know, these halcyon days might be really misguided and that maybe they aren't what you remember and that it's Mm. probably better to just move on, you know, in a way that is a really perverse (laughs) message to send in a show like this, that is ostensibly a reboot, but you know what, man, like it's fucking true. Like it's, it's real life, you know, like it's, you can't, you can't live in the past and you know, you know, you think back on your childhood and 
at least I do, and there's part of me that thinks, you know, things were a lot simpler back then, and, you know, I didn't have all these adult neuroses and responsibilities weighing me down, but at the same time, like, I also know that I wouldn't want to go back there, because I remember how I felt, and, you know, a lot of the time, I was, I was not very happy, and it wasn't as rosy as I always remember it being sometimes when I really stop and think about it. You know, at mm-hmm. times I'm reminded of, uh, you know, feeling very, <laughs> feeling very bad. And, you know, um, you know, there are things in retrospect now that seem fine at the time that really weren't. And I just think that at its, at its core, this show is really getting at some of those ideas and doing so in a very, very roundabout sort of way, but and in a way that I probably didn't even totally internalize at the time. But now thinking about it, I think one of the reasons that I'm so obsessed with this show is because for all of its extravagance, for all of its obscurity, I think it really does get at certain emotional truths. And I think that it could only have been made by a pair of artists, Lynch and Frost, who had the benefit of 25 years under their belt. Like, they could never have made this show in 1992 or whatever if there had been a third season of Twin Peaks. It's, it's It's a work that demands the passage of time. And, yeah, I just... I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say. Like, I, I, there's, I feel like there's like infinite amount of things to say about this. And yet, um, like oftentimes when I, when I talk about it, I, I'm left at a loss for words. That That's another thing just about this show too. It's like every time I watch it, I feel like I get a new, um, a new good point that I, I, I want to bring up and talk to people about. And every conversation goes like this one that we're having right now, where, which is like, you know, unless you run up into someone who feels they have the definitive answers, which I have not yet. Um, everyone seems to be having the same almost circular conversation about the show. And um, that is the beauty of it. Like the, the beauty of it is that you're going to uh, assign values to certain things and use your own experiences as a human being and your own emotions to fill in all these blanks more to the point is that i am uh i am 100 percent correct in all of my theories and if you want to know how twin peaks season three goes just rewind this podcast and listen to everything i said because i'm 100 percent right <laughs> yeah and like we've mentioned before anything that we didn't cover this time around we're, we're definitely going to cover on uh 119 the sequel so yeah one um, one one ten around (laughs) (laughs) yes worst joke Um, on this podcast ever (laughs) yes it's a fitting note fitting note to go out on um so yeah i mean overall you know my thoughts about this finale are um I love it. I think it's beautiful and haunting and amazing and heartbreaking and mysterious. And I love it. Um, if this is the end of Twin Peaks, 
I will be completely satisfied. I I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before or not, but I personally do not believe that we're going to get any more. I firmly believe that this is it. I just think that it's devised as an ending. I really strongly disagree with those people who think that this ending is essentially like a backdoor uh, pilot for like a fourth season or something. I, mm-hmm. I strongly disagree with that. Um, and I just think that, you know, Lynch, <laughs> Lynch is, Lynch is old, dude. He's, he's old. He's like in his seventies yeah. and it took him five years to make this behemoth of a season. And like a lot of his friends and collaborators are dead. You know, even people who were alive for the filming of the series are now dead they had to do some pretty extraordinary backflips to get people like Philip Jeffries and Major Briggs into the show. You know, they had to work around everybody's schedules. It was a massive production, you know, 200 plus speaking roles, 18 hours. It's just, I, I just don't think that Lynch is going to want to put himself through that again you know i i mean if we get something else if there is more it's inconceivable to me that it would be anything close to this size i think at most maybe we'll get like i don't know like a a movie or something for showtime you know i just i was thinking the same thing but even then but even then i just i i i think it's done I, th- I think it's over, and I'm, I'm perfectly with okay with that. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm it's totally, one of those totally 100 fine with it. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like I don't think that that ending like I don't think that classifies as a cliffhanger. Like a cliffhanger no. is something I, I, that I totally agree. This is a real sticking point between me and like I just I, I again I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just I want to reiterate like <laughs> I strongly feel that this is not just like a way for them to leave open the possibility of a new season. Like, I think it is an ending period. Yeah. And it was made, it was designed that way for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that if, um, if David Lynch had like personally closed the door on that possibility, he probably would have come out and said it like, I'm done. This is the ending. Um, or maybe he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, um, you know, the sort of like the open door. I, I think most people's sense of hope comes from the fact that no cast member has outright said or no one on the production team has outright said we're never doing right. this again. And most of them say that right. I hope that they will. But yeah, I would. It's, ulti- it's Lynch's call ultimately. Like, let's be honest. Right. It's not of like they don't know. Like if he says if he says jump, they're going to say how high. Like it's all up to him. Right. And he might be undecided, but I don't think that even matters. Like, I don't think that affects this ending at all. I think that for it to have been a cliffhanger, there would have to be, like, a question. Like, like in in some ways, too, I think that, like, the ending of season two isn't really a cliffhanger. Like, it's not like tune in next week to find out what happens. It's just like, mm-hmm. no, something really bad happened, and now it's over. 
And like the question is like, oh, well, now Bob is inside Cooper. So what does that mean? That's not a cliffhanger. That's that you can say it's an open ended, like an open ending. But to me, a cliffhanger is something like, you know, like this character is left hanging from a cliff. Will they survive or will they not? It's like, (laughs) yes or no. Like literally a cliffhanger. Well, that's I'm sort of that's sort of what it's getting at, right? It's like coming off of that old that old timey radio show thing where it's like the this lady is tied to a to a friggin' train track and there's a train coming and the red rider or whatever is like halfway down the road. Is he gonna get there in time? Find out next week. It's like there's a direct question in that the answer there is an answer. Like that's sort of like what a cliffhanger is. It's saying like there's an answer and we didn't give it to you. In this sense, like I don't think that there's that's not what you're seeing. You're 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 seeing an end. You're seeing a consequence to an action. And it might rub up against your expectations, which is why you may interpret it as a cliffhanger. But to me, it is designed to be an ending. It it it's a mysterious ending, um but I don't think it it puts forth the proposition that there is um like that you're going to tune in next week and find out what happened. Um, I think you're fully left understanding that like if, in order for you to, to get a full 100% understanding of what happened, it's going to take a whole other like you're going to have to like be Dale Cooper. Like there's no way like there's no there's and especially if you know what Twin Peaks is. That is what my would goal, a fourth season look way. like be Dale Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm after. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> then you I know, can truly but, understand all the secrets. Yeah, and you can have a cool suit. You can you can be really uh, tough if you want to, and really sweet if you want to. Yeah, Man, what even looking. is Dale Cooper? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> same here. Yeah. So, but yeah, I um I, I think we're totally in agreement with that. This this is an ending. It it may be a um an unsatisfactory one to some people, but just because there are unanswered questions, I don't think that it means that this is a cliffhanger ending with a absolute resolution in mind. Um, Sure. Sure. I really don't think it is. Yeah. So I'm not saying that there aren't places that they could go from here because there definitely are. Like, of course there are. you, you, You could definitely, you know, you could write your way out of the scenario. There's still a ton of unanswered questions and hanging plot threads from part, you know, you know, parts one through 17 to, to deal with. Um, but I don't think that, I think it would be a very cynical read to say that it's that way by design so that they could answer them in a later season. I just don't, I don't right. believe that. And look, listen, to be absolutely clear, if they decide that they want to come back and do a fourth season, you know, uh, you know, even if it's just like a four episode arc thing or whatever, or a movie, I'm going to be really excited because oh, yeah. Lynch, and Frost <laughs> yeah. ha- Lynch and Frost have earned my trust at this point that if they decide that they want to continue this story, it's going to be because that they have some really interesting ideas. You know, like they've earned that trust for me. So if there is an announcement of a fourth season and, you know, Lynch is involved, of course, like I'm going to be really excited about that. But at the same time, it's not something that I'm necessarily hungering over. Like I don't sit around thinking, oh, God, I hope there's a fourth season like this. This third season was such such an unlikely 
occurrence and such a profound gift that I just feel I would feel intensely greedy just asking for more. You know, it's like already yeah. kind of a a miracle in itself that this this happened and that this exists like you know like be okay with that <laughs> like, yeah just, don't stare a gift horse I mean, in the mouth who, yeah like whoever thought that this would even happen much less that it would be so incredibly rich and ripe for discussion and analyzation and like i i you know, as we've discussed, like, I just went into the season hoping it was going to be good and, like, not terrible, <laughs> you know? And right, exactly. And it ended up being, like, my favorite thing I've ever seen on TV. Like, uh, you know, if that's what I'm left with, bravo, <laughs> standing ovation, thank you, sir. Like, I'm not going to come back to the well, uh, you know, and exactly. start uh, to hold my hand yeah. out for more. Um, so, yeah. We are in 100% agreement. It's like if, you know, just like like I said, I wasn't asking for a third season of Twin Peaks because it seemed so, just like outside of reality. Like why would that happen? Um, and but then when it when it did happen, I was you know beside myself with excitement. And and like I've mentioned before, I even had to manage that excitement once Lynch walked away from it and sort of like distance myself from the hype. Um, I really think that's probably how I would react to the news of a fourth season. Um, I'd probably feel a little bit differently than I did before because before this I was just like, you know, a fan of Twin Peaks and I still am, but I feel like after doing this podcast, I have like a vested <laughs> like stake in just mm-hmm. my own head of like, you know, hunger for more uh, yeah. n- knowledge, and not by the necessarily way, folks, more. Show. And by the way, sorry to interrupt, but for those listening, mm-hmm. um, if there is another season of Twin Peaks, I will be holding Dylan at knife point and forcing him to speak into a microphone about it. So, uh, yeah, just don't rest even. It, it it will happen if that if that's the case. I mean, but that's sort of what I'm getting <laughs> at. Like now, I might now if there's a fourth season, it will it would probably you know spark a huge amount of excitement in my mind. But it would do that because I have fucking no idea what that looks like. I do not know. I know what it could look yeah. like. I could probably write you five scenarios of what I think the first episode will be. And they will. And I know for a fact they will almost all be completely not even close. And that's yeah. why I would be excited. Or it'll be it like a movie how... where it's like the Carrie Page Chronicles. And it'll just yes. have like no connection to anything from season three. And everybody will pissed off. We'll be pissed off at it like they were at Firewalk with me all over again. <laughs> that would be the best case scenario for me because then, because <laughs> then I can just go see it in a theater and and then argue with someone on Twitter about it. But um, <laughs> no, I mean I'm 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 right there with you in that like I am wholly um, just profoundly grateful that we got this in general, and um, I would really have to you know, twist myself into pretzels to uh, expect a fourth season based on what I saw. Um, I would really, and I, and I, and I know some people definitely disagree with that and, and think that for sure that there's um, open threads and, but I would just say that I don't, I agree. There are open threads that to me does not mean that there's an intention to finish or, or continue the story. Although if they do, I would love it. I would love it mm-hmm. wholeheartedly and I would watch every second of it and I would fucking 
chew your ears off with it again. Um, <laughs> so, so here's to hoping. But if it never happens, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly, perfectly happy um, just watching this one over again and just trying to wrap my head around it and probably come up with like twelve different interpretations of every episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, what else is there to say about this season? I mean, I guess, you know, in closing, um, I, I'm just so happy that we got this. Like, it's just, it's incredible to me that it happened. I, I, I honestly can't say that I've been quite as affected by um, a work of art as I have been by this one, at least not since... I don't know, like, I was, like, a teenager when you're, like, in that zone where, like, you discover your favorite band or something and you just become totally obsessed and, like, fall down a rabbit hole and just, like, have that really youthful enthusiasm for something where you just, like, want to write, you know, you just, like, want to write their name on your sneakers and all over your binders (laughs) and whatnot. Like, I I haven't really felt that way about anything since then and this was that for me and it was totally unexpected totally completely out of the blue and um it was just one of those things where it wasn't just a thing that i enjoyed and that i found very compelling and moving it was like it was it was a piece of art that seemed to like open up new like pathways of pleasure in my brain that I didn't even know existed. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I can't like go back and try to imagine like what my, what I was like before this show. <laughs> like, I know that that seems <laughs> yeah. like very, uh, it's like a very lofty thing to say, but it really did have that sort of like all encompassing impact on me. And, you know, the reason that this podcast existed, you know, I, you know, I asked you, like, do you want to do this podcast? Because I just found that a year later, you know, almost a year later after it was over, I was still, like, obsessed with it and still watching it and still, like, thinking about it and just, like, you know, like, just pregnant with thoughts about it. I just had things I wanted to say. And there's really never been anything else like that for me. So, you know, in closing for me, I just want to say, uh david lynch mark frost uh you guys fucking rock kyle mclaughlin you fucking rock everybody who was a part of this show you know for all of its you know flaws not saying it's perfect or anything like that but um you know i'll go to my grave being forever grateful that this thing exists do you dylan do you uh do you have any parting thoughts for the series I mean, I, I can echo those sentiments. <clears throat> I didn't, um, I didn't know what to expect going in, and I didn't really know how I felt going out. But a, a year and change later, um, I'm with you. It's my favorite thing I've ever seen on TV. Um, it's my favorite. Like, I don't even know how to word it. It's my my favorite movie. It's my favorite TV show. It's my favorite piece of film profoundly because of how it made me feel i actually the i believe it was around part three 
<clears throat> my uh, ex-girlfriend and I broke up. We had been dating for like two and a half years. So it was a really rough time. Like, uh, and one of the few things I found myself looking forward to every week was Sunday night. Sunday night, 9 p.m., I would just sort of be taken away. I would just be brought to a place. And I am very much like, it's hard to keep my attention. And or I find that I have a hard time paying attention, especially to, uh, to a TV that's not like right up in my face. And I watched this whole thing the first time through in my living room with my roommate, sitting a good, you know, 10, 12 feet away from the TV with subtitles on because he can't hear that well. And uh, by all accounts, I should have got distracted. And I never did, ever. Um, and nothing has, no other show has just really um, brought my imagination into the fold and sort of never let it go. Um, like, I feel like I will constantly be grappling with some of the thoughts that I've had because I've watched the show, like not even necessarily the content of the show itself, but the, the visceral emotional responses I had to certain scenes, I'll be left pondering and, 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 and turning over in my mind for years to come. And, um, I only hope that this show as in meaning one, one nine will, will continue to be an avenue to discuss this show with, with people into in the future. And, um, uh, if you're coming to this show after we've, you know, stopped, uh, recording it in real time, I hope you'll still send us DMS or emails because I'll never get sick of talking about it. I just won't because it is, um, it's just one of the few things that has completely, uh, just captured me. And, um, I am beyond thankful uh, that it exists and that I was fortunate enough to uh, be in the timeline where it does exist uh, in the right place at the right time and that I've had the opportunity to talk about it with just so many bright, awesome, cool people, um, much like yourself, Nick. You're okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, everyone, everyone um, on the podcast, off the podcast, in real life, um, it's just, it's just been such a, an absolute joy to go through all of this. And, um, it's just in summation, it's what I love about art and it's why I've always been drawn to it because there's something in, um, there's something in a piece of art that is greater than the sum of its parts and you'll never be able to actually deconstruct it and find out why it affects you the way that it does, but it just does. And there's a lot of truth in that. And there's so much, um, there's a lot of wisdom in it too. I think that idea that you can be moved by something and not necessarily know why And the validation of that is, uh, I think it's really profound. And this show this season in particular gets at the heart of that. And I, I really just couldn't be happier to, to have experienced it and to have had the opportunity to talk about it for hours and hours and hours. Um, so that's, that's my piece. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we had originally planned on bringing this up towards the beginning of the podcast. Um, but, it appears that I forgot 
and that's on me, but uh, okay. we should probably talk about the what lies in the future for 119. We're doing a full and Beavis and Butthead analysis of every episode they ever did, so stay tuned. Yes, uh, including <laughs> the movie uh, Beavis and Butthead Do America. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's going to be at least as long as uh, this <laughs> podcast if not longer, I expect to do a full three hours on each episode of Beavis and Butthead. There's so much to say. Um, but yeah, no. So, um, as far as what lies ahead for this podcast, the answer is that um, we're not done. Um, we are definitely going to be doing, at a minimum, Firewalk with me. <laughs> that is. That is virtually certain, and it sounds like we're probably going to have a guest that we really like on for that to talk about it with us, um, so that should be really fun, um, and we're thinking we will likely go back and discuss some other Lynch works. Um, you know, we're both really big fans of Lynch generally. And, uh, you know, frankly, we just, we don't want to stop doing this show, man. (laughs) We really like doing this podcast. Uh, it's been an awesome experience and, um, we've really had a great time with it. We've really appreciated all the feedback that we've gotten from the community and yeah, we really just, we want to, we want to hang around for a little while longer. You guys, uh, you haven't gotten rid of us quite yet. Nope, um, and there's so much more left to say, um, and I can't wait. Yeah, so I guess in closing, Dylan, my friend, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me, man. I really do appreciate it. I mean, we had never had a a voice-to-voice conversation before we did this podcast, and um you know, I I couldn't have picked a better co-host to do this. I mean, it was just, it was an awesome experience, man. Thanks a lot. Dude, thank you. And thank you for asking me. And um, thank you for all the work you've done, guys. Nick edits all the podcasts and puts them all up on Fireside. I just talk like a lazy boy. Um, but seriously, thank you for all the all the work you've put in, making the show notes, like all of the... Um, all the research you've done. I mean, <clears throat> it's um, you, you took the lead on this one in a big way, and I'm really grateful because I probably um, I'm just such a procrastinator. I probably wouldn't have done that. So thank you so much for asking me, and uh, just a quick shout out. Thank you, Josh Crow, for deciding to watch uh, Twin Peaks because that's what ultimately <laughs> brought us into that DM, which got us chirping about this show a year later. So, um, uh, but yeah, no, seriously, man, you've you've put in a, a lion's share of the work and um mm-hmm. i'm really 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 happy that you chose to do that and i'm very thankful thanks man i appreciate it um yeah shout out to josh crow who uh you guys will remember as the british man from uh our episode on part eight uh just one of the best dudes around i mean really i mean you will never hear a bad word about that dude. He is just like one of the nicest, most supportive guys that uh, you could ever, ever encounter, especially on the internet. So shout out to him. And again, I know I already did this, but just huge shout out to all of our guests throughout this season. You guys were fucking awesome. 
uh, Sean, uh, John, Andrew, Lindsay, Aiden, Gisela, you guys rock. Thanks so much. And, um, yeah, I'm just so glad that we did this. It was a lot of fun and we got to talk about a show that I absolutely love. I love this show more than I can even begin to express. Um, uh, yeah, even after what 35 hours at this point of talking about it, I still don't feel like, uh, you know, I still don't feel like I'm done, which is a crazy nope. thing to say. Same um, here. Yeah. It's, so it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, um, we're not done. However, we're probably not going to, uh, have a set schedule for releasing episodes from this point forward. Um, episodes are probably going to be a little bit more sporadic from here on out. Um, so, you know, just be prepared for that. You're not going to be getting a, uh, a piping hot, fresh new episode of, of one, one nine every week. But yeah, like I said, we're not done. Uh, we will be back. And, um, it sounds like we do, uh, have some, some pretty cool collaborations in the works, possibly some, uh, appearances on some other Twin Peaks podcasts. Uh, wink wink possibly in the works uh, so yeah just thank you so much to everybody who took this journey with us we really do appreciate it I know I'm being extremely long winded here because I really don't want to say goodbye <laughs> um, but yeah sincere thank you to, to everybody who listened and um, yeah with that uh we'll we'll see you guys around. Thanks so much. Peace out.